Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, which you can now find at cinematicmultiverse.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and Reese Williamson. So yes, James is sitting the podcast out this week. He just couldn't face two hours with me and Seb discussing Man of Steel. He didn't want to risk being sat next to me when I vomited again. <laughs> that will all be we'll explained, listeners. We'll get to that. Um, but yeah, so in his stead we have Reese returning for the first time since Chronicle. So, Reese, do you want to remind the listeners who you are? And why we've asked you to join us for our Man of Steel episode. So who am I? I know you and Seb from various past podcasty thingies. I uh, have produced Seb's uh, sitcom a few years back. I mean, you, Joe, we go way, way back. Oh, way back. We, got, we were recording podcasts as little babies, weren't yeah. we? Yeah, this is my favourite baby toy. We were recording um, student ra- film radio together. We were, yes. Yeah. And it was uh groundbreaking and Award winning. Loved it, Award winning. Yeah. And it really as you it's kick started our radio careers. Yeah. Um and we are now continuing to move forward in that space. <laughs> uh and obviously the Chronicle episode that I did really blew some doors off and people have yeah. been clamouring ever since. But why specifically Man of Steel? Because I like Man of Steel, basically. Yeah. And you, Seb doesn't. He really doesn't. And <laughs> yeah. uh, there'll be some you, I, I might have good. changed my mind on a rewatch. You don't know. don't know how it's going <laughs> to hmm. go. Okay. I suspect you haven't, but we'll find out. Yeah. And, and just to spoil... I mean, he's not here to defend himself or agree or disagree, but James dislikes Man of Steel kind of as violently as you do, Seb, right? Yeah. Yeah, so possibly more so. We thought uh, we thought it would be more fun to have someone like Reese here to, for some healthy debate. Well, I think I think it reflects the fact that you know there are people who liked this, and not just you know people who liked it in a compromised way, but people who really liked this as a Superman film that they wanted to see. And we know that people who listen to this show and people who talk to us on Twitter, some of you like this film as well. So we, I think, we didn't want it to come across like we were just going to spend two hours completely tearing it apart because that wouldn't be a fun listen. Um, okay, so this week we'll discuss the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Zack Snyder's 2013 film Man of Steel. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seb and maybe a little bit Reese to explain a comic book concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. And this week, guys, I hear the rumour, it's out there on the grapevine, 
is that Iron Fist is going to be joined by a character in his Netflix TV show going by the name of Shang-Chi. So, my question is, who, who's that then? Who's he? What's what's the Shang-Chi do? Master Kung Fu, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, take it from there. He's <laughs> basically, I mean, you've got Shang-Chi and you've got Iron Fist, who both appeared in the early 70s. Shang-Chi came first, actually, uh, 72, and uh, Iron Fist was in 74, he said, with Wikipedia tabs open. <laughs> um, but no, it's... Um, I mean, the reason for there being two characters that are so similar in various ways... Uh, it's just basically that in the early 70s you had a kung fu craze going on in America and as we've seen like for example when we talked about Blade uh, Marvel were never slow to capitalise on a, you know a, a trend in pop culture and that's why in the 80s you know you had ninjas in comics and in the early 70s you had kung fu characters but they are inspired by different things because um, Iron Fist came about basically because Roy Thomas um, went to see a load of Bruce Lee films and really liked them and mm. so wanted to create a character massive. He even nicked the name Iron Fist, I think, from a film. Um, and Shang-Chi was actually because a writer called Steve Englehart um, was a really big fan of the TV show Kung Fu, you know, the, the David Carradine yeah. show. Um, that was really big in the early 70s and um, they basically wanted to do a comic based on it. They actually, I think, wanted to try and get the rights to it, but it was uh, owned by Time Warner, who owned DC. So they basically said no. And But is there a noticeable difference between the two characters like on the page in terms of like origin story powers? Well, one big difference, and this is the other thing I'll, I'll get to in terms of rights and stuff, is something that Marvel did have the rights to, which was Fu Manchu. Uh, Marvel had the rights to publish Fu Manchu comics, right. so they introduced Shang-Chi as the son of Fu Manchu. Um, and so that's kind of prob- probably the, the big difference, really, is that um, you know Shang-Chi is actually Eastern, rather than being an American guy who goes over there and learns to be an amazing Kung Fu guy. Oh, um, okay. So he's, he's just a bit more sort of, um, you know, actually you know of of that kind of you know group of people and you know um he, and he has the sort of the background of being the son of a villain so i mean he's not a villain he is a hero yeah. so it's more about the story of him you know turning on his supposed destiny as the as the son of the great fu manchu and instead you know um going over to the the us and and becoming a superhero basically does he have powers I don't think he specifically does. Not not in the way that Iron Fist has, you know, the sort of the the power of the Iron Fist or uh-huh. however that actually works, um, which is a kind of chi thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? Which is ironic because Shang Chi is called Shang Chi. <laughs> um, but I don't I don't think he specifically has powers. He's just he's just the master of kung fu, basically. Okay, um, so but the, I'm now thinking that this Iron Fist TV series suddenly we were all thinking, oh, it's a little bit disappointing that they've cast this bland white guy as Iron Fist. But now, you just do Big Trouble in Little China, right? You (laughs) set up Iron Fist as the Kurt Russell kind of idiot figure who you think is the hero, but it turns out the whole way through, Shang-Chi's the hero. And Iron Fist is just your dumb American who happens to get lucky and get some powers, whereas this guy's actually got all the skills to begin with. You could do. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure they again again. I'm, I'm not gonna, I, <laughs> I've not read many comics with either of them, but no. I mean, but I mean the idea of them them teaming up and having them both. I don't know how much they've teamed up in the comics. You know, despite the fact that they are 
you know, similarly themed in some ways. The other um, issue that you've got with Shang-Chi is the fact that while Marvel had the rights to Fu Manchu back when they created him, they don't anymore. Mm. So they have had to sort of quietly retcon out the fact that he's um, moving away from that as much as possible is is kind of a good thing. But is this basically, do you think Marvel has sort of, this has been kind of leaked uh, by Marvel because of the reaction to Finn Jones being, a, you know, not an Asian actor playing? It feels person? a little bit sort of, yeah, don't worry, look, you know, we're aware of mm. this. I could see something vaguely interesting in the idea of having one guy, you know, who is actually a Chinese martial artist and the master of Kung Fu. And if you're going to have this guy who's a character who's the the white guy who goes and appropriates it, then actually teaming him up with someone who's as good as him and having the relationship between the two of them and, you know, the one kind of training the other and that kind of thing. Um, I think could be a more interesting way of doing it, but mm. obviously the issue, the thing that you've got with Iron Fist is that the partnership that everyone wants to see is Power, Power Man and Iron yeah. Fist. That's so, um, but it's I mean I don't know enough about Shang Chi to really know if he's that interesting as a character, like as a concept. You know, hey, he's a kung fu superhero, but um, you know, I don't know what's there in terms of personality that would set him apart from. Iron Fist and uh, make him work. Maybe it doesn't matter because if you're doing a show, you just give him you give him whatever personality you want. He's yeah. probably not. He's like you say. If, if you're unfamiliar with him, Seb, I doubt there are like legions of fans who would get annoyed if he's slightly cheerier than he was in the comics I mean, or something like I, that. I think he has always been quite overshadowed by Iron Fist. Like it's like you know. I mean, I'm you know. I don't know that much about Iron Fist, but I know a lot of people who are big Iron Fist fans. Like that character has a fan base and a history. And quite a lot of iconography around him, in a way that I don't really think that Shang Chi does. Um, okay, well we'll move on now to take a look at some of the comic book movie news that has broken over the past week. And guys, we have news for what Sony have planned now that they've kind of rejigged their whole plans at what they're doing with Spider Man. So before, you know, we were maybe getting a Sinister Six movie and an Ant May flashback movie. Don't know how true that ever was, but. Um, that apparently is a thing. Um, but so now Marvel and Sony are kind of co-using Spider-Man and Sony is figuring out what they're going to do with their other Spider-Man rights outside of this. And apparently what they are going forward with is Venom. So the Hollywood Reporter reported that they had hired um, a guy called Dante Harper to write the script for a Venom movie which will be produced as kind of all Spider-Man movies have to be, unless you're Kevin Feige and can kind of forcibly remove them from the room, um, Avi Arad and Matt Tolmach, um, and that it would basically be kind of separate from the main Spider-Man continuity, so it would kind of be just its own thing that Sony are making. So, a Sony Venom movie, guys, does that sound like a good idea and something you would like to watch? It sounds like about as good an idea as it did when they were planning it previously, which is not very, uh, with the exception that at least this time Alex Kurtzman probably won't hmm. be doing it. So um, sure that's probably an improvement. <clears throat> um, but no, you know, I mean, it's, as long as it's not going to be a Kurtzman or Orsi film, then it's 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 got to be better than previous. It's just, 
I don't know. Did, does this not feel to anybody else like them, like spectacularly not learning lessons? It's like you know they built this whole thing and they had this idea of oh we're going to plan all of these movies because we're so sure that Amazing Spider-Man is going to be success, a success that now we're going to do a Venom movie and we're going to do Sinister Six and we're doing Amazing Spider-Man three and Amazing Spider-Man four and then Amazing Spider-Man two tanks so they scrub everything off the board and then they kind of basically get bailed out by Marvel because now whether or not it's any good there's going to be a new Spider-Man film that's going to be a fresh start and that is pretty much guaranteed to be more of a success than Amazing Spider-Man was just because it's part of the MCU and now Sony are going our new Spider-Man film is going to be a massive success so now we're going to do a Venom film and now we're going to do this and it's like just see how the first one goes before you put anything else on the table because you know, how do we know what to expect out of a Venom movie when we don't even know anything about what this new Spider-Man's mm. going to be like? You you can't make any kind of judgment or expectation on a Venom movie set in this new Sony universe, whether that's... And is it going to be part of the MCU? Is he not? It's it's just... We, we don't know how any of this is going to shake out. And I also, I don't think Venom is a great character to immediately launch as a standalone character. Venom can be a good... Firstly, he can be a good villain, and then he can be an entertaining anti-hero, but you need that link to Spider-Man. You can't introduce Venom on his own and have him be a compelling character. So, a good villain, entertaining anti-hero... Does that remind you of another character that recently had a successful movie? Oh, Deadpool, (laughs) yeah. This is obviously what this is, right? This is... Well, yeah, Yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. You know, all the, all the studios right now are probably scrubbling around to, you know, which is the wrong way of doing it. But they're like, okay, so Deadpool, this is not a new superhero take. This was super successful uh, because it was different and you know, sort of a, a new take. What should we all do? Let's just try and find our closest character to Deadpool and make that <laughs> an R-rated superhero movie. Which is again not the lesson to learn, but this is the lesson that they're all learn, learning at the moment. Well, Cerise, uh, how well do you know Venom from like the page? Do you know... Because there's, like, different iterations of him. There's different people that the symbiote has taken over, right? Yeah, I, I, quite, I quite liked... Uh, I think I read the first couple of um, trades of the Rick Remender Venom book, the most the most recent iteration, which is the Flash Thompson version. Is that, like, Agent Venom? Yeah. He's, and he's part of the Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy now. It was crazy and fun and big, and I would imagine definitely not what they'll do in this Venom movie. <laughs> um but again, I'm going to say we just we'll have to see what Tom Holland Spider Man is. You know, maybe you'll get a tiny hint. You get Flash Thompson in uh, in the new one, and if if they do do it, it it should probably be the Flash Thompson one, even if it's not specifically that character, but that concept of. But it's again, concept, it, yeah. it, it it's like the concept partly relies on the symbiote having been around for a while, and everyone knows that it it used to be. Eddie Brock and it used to be evil and it was a Spider-Man villain because part of what makes the Flash Thompson Venom work as a character is that anyone who initially meets him is like hang on aren't you a villain and he's like well actually no I'm working for the for the government and I've you know I've kind of tamed the symbiote and it's a good it is a, it, like that character works well and the stories have been pretty good what, what I've read of him and he fits well in the Guardians of the Galaxy and stuff but it does kind of rely on that that previous setup but I think if you are going to do it you've got much more of a story hook with Here's a soldier who has lost his legs and here is an alien technology that has given him the ability to walk around again and be a kind of super-powered soldier, but at some point it's, he's probably going to die as a result. Sure. That's it's, a it's good Avatar. Hook. And, a little you know, bit, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah, Avatar. It's a bit. Avatar with more, like, um, with more tongues. 
Yes. Or long tongues. <laughs> well, so it's here's a concept though. Here's my question: If, say, if Sony do kind of want to do their Spider-Man movies, and because they're aware that they've got this MCU connection, they don't want to complicate stuff too much and decide that any other Spider-Man related properties that they make are going to be in their own continuity and separate, which it sounds like is an option for this. Like, could a character like Venom work completely removed from the context of Spider-Man? And could, like... Because I know Sony were kind of talking about using characters like Silk before and, you know, maybe doing um, individual stuff with characters like Black Cat or... Is there a way that Sony can do Spider-Man movies without Spider-Man and just keep that separate? Is that is I that mean, something that would work? And, and like, I mean, my gut instinct over Venom would be to say, what's the point of doing Venom if he's not linked to Spider-Man? But then, ever since he became Flash Thompson, after his initial appearances, he has been kept pretty separate from Spider-Man. He pops up every so often, but they they don't really interact. He, he has kind of carved a bit more of his own niche, but... You know, at the end of the day, Venom is a character that is essentially a derivative of Spider-Man and has a big spider on his chest. So why would you want to take that character? I mean, at least the version of Venom in the comics that doesn't really interact with Spider-Man much, he is still around in the same world. If you're going to do a story where Venom has no pre-existing connection to Spider-Man in the first place, you know, I mean, even, Mm. even Deadpool, you know, they could have done Deadpool and not had anything X-Men related in it at all. Deadpool could have been completely separate, but they worked in the idea that he exists in a world with the X-Men because they were able to use him as a character to play off the idea of the X-Men. And I think with Venom, you want something similar. You want him to play off the idea of Spider-Man because that's where he derives from. You know, He's a dark mirror of Spider-Man, if you like. And so why would you not want to play that up? Because if you take it away, it it could just be anything. He doesn't even really need to be Venom. It's like you could go off and create a character that was a bit similar but have the serial numbers filed off and you wouldn't have to worry about rights. You know? but, it's okay. Last point on Venom. You, I think there's a way that you can do it, they can do it where they kind of have their cake and eat it too, which is that you're using the Venom character, you have him on the posters. He looks like, you know... He looks like Spider-Man. He, sort of Spider-Man, shoots, yeah. he looks like evil, cool Spider-Man. That's that's why he was a successful character in the first place, I think, because it just tapped into that, oh, I like Spider-Man, and this one looks like an edgy, cool version of Spider-Man. You, you bring people in uh, on that opening weekend because of that visual, um, and you, you, don't, you don't need to actually explicitly reference the Spider-Man character in the Venom movie. It's in people's heads. You, know, you don't need to sort of establish it in the text. It mm. exists in the subtext, and the subconscious. Um, you look at Deadpool, and at least the thing about Deadpool, okay, not to the general audience, but within comics, Deadpool had an active audience. It's like part of the reason why Deadpool got made was because there were people who wanted a Deadpool movie because he was a popular guy. Deadpool now in the comics is kind of like Venom was in the 90s in terms of being that anti-hero everybody loved and people wanted to see comics and stuff about and who just got endless spin-offs. Venom is not like that now. Venom does not have a ready-made audience who will lap it up and you know again I know it's not a massive audience but it have Deadpool having the fan base that it had undeniably helped them go and make a Deadpool movie to appeal to those people because they recognised that it could appeal to a wider market if only those people got to hear of it. Now does not feel like the time that Venom is going to kind of capture the zeitgeist, you know, uh, aside from the fact that they'll want to play it exactly like Deadpool. But it's 
you know, if Deadpool had been made 20 years previously, it would have been a Venom movie. But it's not 20 years ago now, you know? Well, I'm going to predict summer 2019, Venom opens. You know, they very confidently stick on a post-credits tag where Venom walks out and goes, Hey guys, I'm going to put Carnage in the sequel. <laughs> and we just never see it. It'll never happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Okay, well, we'll move on to our second bit of news now, and this relates to Sandman. Um, So Sandman, um, the Neil Gaiman comic, which Joseph Gordon-Levitt was attached to as both director and star. Um, And a couple of days ago, uh, news broke that a new writer had been hired on the movie. Um, This this was a guy called Eric Heisserer. Um, He has previously written films like the remake of The Thing, the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street... Um, Final Destination 5 and is about to, um, has written the up screenplay for the upcoming Van Helsing movie. Now, previously, Jack Thorne, um, who, you know, is a guy who wrote on Skins and has written with J.K. Rowling, the new Harry Potter play, was attached to the project. And so I think a couple of people were a little bit confused by this news. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt went on Facebook to clarify what had happened and basically announced that he was leaving the project. Um, so I'll, I'll read the kind of the key bit of this. Um, he said, recently, as you might know, if you like to follow these sort of things, the sort of ownership, for lack of a better term, of the Sandman material changed hands when Warner Brothers shifted the entire catalogue of Vertigo comics to their subsidiary New Line. And a few months ago, I came to realise that the folks at New Line and I just don't see eye to eye on what makes Sandman special and what a film adaptation could slash should be. So unfortunately, I decided to remove myself from the project. I wish nothing but the best for the team moving forward. So basically, it sounds like the creative direction of a Sandman movie has shifted, which means that we will no longer get Gigolo Joe as our director slash star. So the question is, should we be concerned about this? I've always been sceptical about the idea of a good Sandman movie happening. It's it's even more unfilmable than, than Watchmen, I think. Although, well, I did Watchmen prove to be filmable. Go back and listen to the podcast to find out. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's just not cinematic in the slightest. And you can't boil it down to a convenient two-hour-long movie. Um, you know, I've I've read the the scripts that were kicking around in the kind of nineties or early two thousands, whenever it was, when you know they wanted to turn it into, um, you know, Morpheus um, battling his brother, the Lord of Bad Dreams, under New York City hmm. and that kind of thing. And it's just, in by its very nature, some man is so incredibly literary that I don't know. We should say that maybe nothing's unfilmable, and lots of things have been attempted to be made into films that maybe couldn't have, but. I would just always have been sceptical of it really being any good. But if they were going to do it, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's version seemed to be making all the right noises. And Why do you say that, though? To... What? There weren't many noises. How, how can you... Well, the, well, no, but I mean, but he, he had been posting stuff on, on Facebook before, and um, he'd been... It seemed that he had had quite good dialogue with Neil Gaiman about it. It seemed like he was genuinely someone who, you know, was a fan of and understood the comic, although that doesn't always make for a good adaptation. But, you know, I mean, yeah, we didn't know a huge amount about it, but it felt like it was in the hands of someone who wanted to try and do it justice and put an interesting spin on it in the same way as it looks like, for example, um, Seth Rogen and um, Evan Goldberg are doing with Preacher at the moment. 
Um, you know, like I would have expected that Gordon Levitt's Sandman film would not necessarily have just directly adapted the plot, but might have got to the nub of what the comic was about anyway. I mean, you know, there's a lot of this is just kind of gut feeling, really. Um, but I, I still, even though they were always talking about making it, I still wouldn't have been 100% certain that it was ever actually going to come through to fruition. Um, and despite the fact that the project hasn't been canned by Gordon Levitt leaving it, I'm now even less confident that it will even happen. But it, it because... does seem interesting that if kind of he's saying that he left the project a couple of months ago, basically, or came mm. to that decision, and yet two days ago they're hiring a new writer. It sounds like they yeah. they're probably getting ready to build it back up again from the ground I up. I think it'd be a case of building from the ground up. And, but and it's based just... on that choice of writer, that maybe it's going to be a more simplistic version. Well, that, yeah, I mean, you know, no offence to the guy, but the previous credits ring alarm bells because it sounds like, it sounds like the word, it sounds like somebody who is very happy working in a studio system and a studio produced, not studio produced, you know, a, a studio driven Sandman movie is not going to be a good Sandman movie. If it's ever going to work, it needs to be pretty auteur driven it needs to have one person it needs to have like a terry gilliam or somebody with a singular vision for it to come along and and do it in much the same way as again and while while i have criticisms of it and while we're about to spend two hours having a go at him Zack snyder was someone who had a distinct vision for exactly what he wanted to do with a watchman movie and he did it whether you like it or not he did that that watchman was not a movie created by committee and Zack you know? snyder is the director um, that saves us from the terry gilliams of this world so <laughs> yes, that's nice quite. Uh, yeah i just you know I, the thing that when when you read out the list of stuff that the guy now writing Sandman had been involved with, the first thing that came to mind for me was League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's what <laughs> I now imagine this Sandman movie turning out like. Um, okay, well that probably brings to an end our conversation about this week's movie news. So we'll move on now, brace yourself guys, to our spoiler-filled discussion of Man of Steel. But before we dive in, let's take a listen to some of Hans Zimmer's drums from the movie. How do you find someone who has spent a lifetime covering his tracks? For some, he was a guardian angel. For others, a ghost who never quite fit in. You will give the people of Earth an ideal to strive towards. They will race behind you. They will stumble. They will fall. But in time, they will join you in the sun. In time, you will help them accomplish wonders. You believe your son is safe? I will find him! father believed if the world found out who I really was, they'd reject me. He was convinced that the world wasn't ready. What do you think? What's the S stand for? It's not an S. On my world, it means hope. Well, here it's an S. How about... That was a really great trailer. I think, I think that seems like a really good movie. I'd, I'd quite like to see that film. See what you've done there, Seb. You've, you've pointed out the, the trend of Zack Snyder 
to make really great trailers for movies that maybe don't live up to that. Is that, yeah. is that fair? So, so we're gonna, we're gonna discuss Man of Steel now, which is obviously the, the kind of first completely fresh continuity Superman film since the Christmas, because we get the four Christopher Reeve ones and then Superman Returns was kind of set up as a semi-sequel to Superman 2. Yeah. I mean, Ralph is supposed to basically be playing the same version as Christopher Reeve. So Whereas Henry Cavill is, most yeah. certainly is not. <laughs> he is basically only the second ever movie version of the character. Yeah, and obviously none of those were definitive because we've got Dean Cain on television. But... Uh, <laughs> was that a snort from Reese? You should know better than to snort about Dean Cain on this podcast. <laughs> no, it's, uh, I'm, I'm a Deanie. I'm yeah. a Cain head. So I think probably the best place to start is certainly for Seb and Reese to tell us generally their overarching views on this movie, why they like slash don't like it, and then... I think I'll probably come in and tell you why I'm kind of somewhere in the middle of those two, and I haven't quite decided yet where on that sliding scale I am. But let's let's start with the positives. Reese, why do you like Man of Steel? So uh, I'm more of a Zack Snyder, or I was more of a Zack Snyder fan pre Man of Steel than than you guys were. I you even sure. like Sucker Punch? I did. I like Sucker Punch. Thought it was interesting. You know, I liked Watchmen. Yeah, I'm a fan of all of the Snyder stuff, really. Uh, I I just found them they would they appealed to me on a sensory level and I also found things to think about during and after those films in general mm-hmm. I think there was more going on behind the scenes than uh, than it appeared and you know, we got a tweet that kind of references that that we'll get to later but so I was a I was a Snyder fan coming in um, and not not a maybe not a huge Superman guy as well that that is important you know uh, comic book reader my whole life of course but more of a marvel guy and, and so what is your superman like are you are you is is the christopher Reeve version your definitive version is that how you know the character best i was thinking about this the other day actually it's probably a mix of you know we just joked about it but it is probably the dean kane version of yes. it uh but you know what also maybe what pips it is the the animated superman superman from the justice league cartoon and then previously okay. the superman animated series uh, that's probably if I had to sort of close my eyes and think of the Superman as I imagine it. That's mm. that's the version, and that 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 type that version of Metropolis as well. That kind of Art Deco thing, um, you know, sort of fifties inspired, but also high tech. That's the version of Metropolis as well that yeah. I imagine. Um, so that's kind of where I was coming into to Man of Steel, and that trailer. I remember just getting really really hyped, thinking that trailer looked looked Terence Malicky, and he's one of my favorite directors. But uh, I re- just remember. Being kind of with the movie from the Krypton stuff, basically that that first twenty five minutes, Russell Crowe um, and Michael Shannon and uh, the, the actress that plays um, uh, Jaws' wife, Ayelet Zura, who plays Kingpin's love interest oh, in Daredevil. Yeah, of she's great, isn't she? Mm. Uh, but anyway, and I was just in. I just found the world really intoxicating and interesting. Russell Crowe's performance, I just connected with. It was quite a just a, a, a human setup, like oh, just, hey, I want to rescue my newborn son, all that sort of stuff. Code exercise, and we'll get to all of that. Mm. But just I was with it for the first twenty five minutes, and then you get the the fun just traveling around Superman and the flashbacks to him discovering his powers. I just fa- I just found the pace of it just dragged me through. To be honest, the first hour really, mm. and then you get the him putting on the suit, and the suit looks really sleek and modern, and you know. 
being a guy who just isn't that attached to, you know, red pants over blue trousers Superman, I thought he looked he looked cool, he looked like a a kind of a comparable modern day DC superhero comparable to the Nolan Batman. He just he did all the stuff that uh, that the move that the movie was sort of talking about doing before it came out. Mm. Um, so I was with it for that. You get that great flight scene. Then you have all of that fun first contact stuff. It, it kind of feels just like a an alien movie for a chunk there in the middle. And then and then you have the slightly controversial final act, which does last ages and is probably too long and has problems with wanton destruction and. I kind of get all that stuff. And actually, in watching the movie past that first time, it's that last 45 minutes that gets worse every time, I think. But I also, I do remember watching it for the first time in a you know big screen with without having read many reviews and just really being kind of blown away by, by the superhero fight, thinking like, I've not seen this in a superhero movie before, this scale. Mm. And, and it kind of it blew me away a bit. It really did. Both of the fight scenes, the Smallville and the Metropolis fight, blew me away. And the final bit, the the, the, the killing bit at the end, it just didn't bother me. Um, and I I love the final line and that stirring hands in the score at the end. And and I was with it. That's that's my arc for the whole the whole movie. Uh, and uh, and now and you're super it. excited to watch him fight Batman. I, I'm kind of not. But, yeah, you uh, wanted Man of Steel well. two more than you wanted I think, Batman I think I did. Six Man. Yeah, yeah. So that's where I am on it. So yeah. you great. Go. So, Seb, brilliant. We've I covered think, everything. <laughs> I think we probably. I'd be surprised if we've never mentioned this on the podcast before. <laughs> but I think, I think you should probably introduce your thoughts on this movie by telling the audience about your visceral reaction to it on first watch. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, God, I just, and this is why it's so difficult to talk about in in a reasonable way because I, I just have so much baggage associated with this movie and I did even before what happened happened um, you know because I, I went into it with very conflicted feelings because you know I am a huge fan of Superman you know when it comes down to it I mean, I may have said the same thing about Spider-Man on the Spider-Man podcast. It's one of those, depending on what mood you're in or who you're talking about at any given time. But, uh, like, Superman is pretty much my favourite superhero. Or maybe it's Spider-Man. I don't know. It's one of those two. <laughs> um, but I am a I'm a big Superman fan. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Superman comics. I'm, a, as you know, an enormous fan of the Christopher Reeve movies. Mm. Just everything that Superman stands for as a superhero is what I'm interested in about superheroes, generally. And I obviously had a lot of trepidation about the film because uh, Watchmen had, you know, as we talked about, there is stuff that I like in Watchmen and there is stuff that's good in Watchmen that I think you can put down specifically to Snyder. So it's not just that I think Snyder is a god-awful hack of a director, but I had trepidation about whether he was the right person to bring an interpretation of, of Superman onto the screen that I wanted to see. Uh, and interpretation is an important word because while I don't think Superman's quite like Batman in that, you know, like you can never say that there is a wrong version of Batman because there are so many different versions of Batman and they're all valid. Superman's a little different. Superman has been a little, he has changed, but he's been a little bit more constant. And I think there are certain things that have to stay in place, but there's totally room to interpret it differently. And I fully respect coming in and doing a movie and saying, we do not want to do the Christopher Reeve movie. We, you know, this is completely our own thing and we're going to lay out our own stall. I still had trepidation because I didn't think that Snyder's take was going to be the one that I wanted to see. Uh, the trailers were good because the trailers always look good. 
But I think it's important to get across that I did not go into this film with my arms folded saying, this is going to be terrible and I want it to be terrible. I went in wanting to enjoy it. I came out having thrown up. Um, <laughs> you know... <laughs> it's, you don't it, mean metaphorically. You mean it, you I really don't mean see. metaphorically. I mean that literally Man of Steel made me puke. <laughs> I don't... You know, the, the obvious kind of joke to say is that it's a film that's so bad it made me puke. Obviously it wasn't because of that. Although, because of when it happened in the film, there is a small part of me that thinks that it was genuine moral revulsion at what was happening. <laughs> because it was during the final fight okay. and it was pretty much almost just before or pretty much as the next snap was happening. But no, I, I still don't know exactly why, but I think it was that I was... It was at the big um, Leicester Square screening. I was very near the front. It was in 3D, and I generally suffer from motion sickness. I've never had it with films, but I get it in cars. And I think that because of where I was sat and because it was in 3D and because there was so much spinning, flying camera stuff, I think it made me motion sick because it came on really suddenly as well. Uh, fortunately, the seat next to me was empty, so most of it went in that oh, direction. God. Some of it went on the people sitting in front of no. me. Some of it may have gone on James, who was on the other <laughs> side of me. Uh, but the worst part was that I had to sit through the last... 15 minutes or so so obviously Man of Steel is always going to be associated with that experience for me but even aside from that it just apart from in fleeting moments it doesn't feel to me like a Superman movie that is made for people who like Superman and that's kind of my one liner take on it is that I know there are people who like this movie but I'd be interested to know how many people who really genuinely love and enjoy this movie are people who love Superman beforehand because I think it's a Superman movie for people who don't like Superman and I don't mean that in like a snobby gatekeeper-y kind of way like oh you only like this movie if you don't understand Superman I don't mean that what I mean is that Superman appeals to some people and doesn't appeal to others and so this is a film that takes and changes certain things about him to make him appeal to the people who wouldn't ordinarily like him I don't mean that you have to be a fan of Superman you know to kind of to appreciate the right kind of Superman story or whatever I just mean that I was not the target audience for this film. I find it really interesting that Reese used the word fun a couple of times because that is the one thing more than anything that I think is lacking from this film. It's just not a fun movie. I just, it's a slog to me. It's just so slow and it's so serious. I, I, it's, I just don't think it's an enjoyable film. It's got no lightness of touch about it at all. And more so than any of the kind of moral problems about what happens and the character of Superman, which, you know, we will get to and boy, will we get to them. I would have less of a problem with that if I had more enjoyed the rest of the film leading up to it. Like, again, you know, maybe it'll be the first thing we'll come on to properly, but the Krypton stuff. And that's, again, something where we differ so much because I felt like the film was on a hide into nothing because it had given me a 20-minute opening sequence on a Krypton that I didn't like and that I didn't enjoy and I just wasn't interested in. And from then on, because the rest of the film was so much about that version of Krypton and about that mythology, mm. it just lost me. It just it, there, there was nothing to hook me in except for Cavill's performance and yeah. the way that he looks as Superman. It's pretty much the only thing that that gives me any kind of tether to this film. So yeah, unsurprisingly, uh, unsurprisingly, I'm going to come down in the middle of that. Um, That's it. Uh. Which so I I. <laughs> When I first saw, when I first saw this movie, um, I saw it at a press screening, um, uh, probably a, maybe a couple of days or a week before it was released. And, um, I remember bumping into another critic on the way out and he, he was just about to go in and watch it. So like, what did you think? And I was like, really not good. And he was like, Oh, 
really like I've, everything I've seen about it, expecting to like it, um, and I'm fairly certain that he came out feeling kind of the exact same way as I did. Um, but I, I think that this, for me, is very similar to Watchmen, and I'm probably going to play a similar role in this podcast as I did on that one, in that I think there's some really interesting stuff in there, as there is with all Zack Snyder movies, and there is some stuff to enjoy. And I actually found on a rewatch this week, particularly the first hour and a half, I was like, this is much better than I remember. I really kind of... I kind of like how they constructed that scene. I think that idea is interesting. I think that that theme running through it is worthy of discussion. Like, I'm quite looking forward to discussing this movie. And then in the final hour, for me, it completely falls apart. But this, this, from my perspective, is not coming from any like like or dislike of how it presents Superman because I I don't really have any of those kind of... It's, it's like back when we were discussing Daredevil on our very first podcast and I was like, I love when Daredevil kills that guy. It's such a great moment for that character. So when Superman killed Zod the first time of watching, I kind of went... I guess that's how this movie ends. It didn't bother me in any particular way. Now looking back at it, I kind of, I kind of think it, it, when you look at what the movie has been teaching you or trying to tell you up to that point, I think it doesn't make any sense as a beat to end the big battle on. But, um, that's kind of by the by, I guess. So I, I, I think I'm kind of, I think I'm kind of like looking forward to discussing this and praising individual aspects of it. But I think, with like many Zack Snyder films, I think he puts up so many barriers to actually enjoying and appreciating his movie. And even that first hour and a half, I think I found it more enjoyable this time because I was kind of sitting there taking notes and going, hmm, that's interesting on a thematic level, or that's interesting, uh, the way that he's constructed that scene, or like even the scene with the dog, I was like, oh, like kind of thematically this scene does make sense. It's just kind of the staging that makes it seem like it it really doesn't make any sense. And I think that's kind of key to something I come up against with Zack Snyder constantly. It's like it feels like a battle to try and have to defend him. It feels like there is there is stuff in there that he is going for and he is a more interesting filmmaker than he seems like on the surface. And in fact, we were, we were both, um, said we were talking about, um, Andrew Ellard, who is one, I think one of our listeners, but also a friend of yours, Twitter friend of mine. Um, and he, he does these tweet notes and his kind of like, he, he wrote some tweet notes on, um, which are, you can find on Storify on Man of Steel. And one of the very first ones he kind of says, it's the very first one he's like, in short, a more fundamentally interesting film than it may appear, but too flawed to entirely work. And I kind of feel like that sums up everything I feel, I feel about this movie, which is that there is so much interesting stuff in there. And if you actually take the time to engage with the film and kind of, for me, get beyond the kind of plodding pace of the first well, if, I think I think that I I I I find the pace of the entire movie a real struggle, even in the mm. the half of the film that I think is better. Um, it just it just feels like a real slog, and I I kind of am more with you, Seb, in that like it doesn't feel like a fun movie. Um, and because the Superman mythos is so well known, like kind of all of the fundamental stuff that's already there, it's like I kind of know this, 
but that's the stuff I like about this movie more than kind of the, the first contacty kind of stuff and the fighty bits and all the stuff that Snyder has brought new to it. While, while we're quoting Andrew, actually, because there was something you said that I, that I was going to um, respond to with this, when you said about um, Snyder kind of putting up barriers to stuff. And there was another point that Andrew made, and, and while I think there is one exception to it, it's a point that I agree with, which is where he says, it's funny how Snyder seems determined to never make a scene iconic. He says, visuals huge yet reject all. And it's true, it's like, you know, Snyder is a, a filmmaker who's so much about these these kind of big visuals and stuff. And yet, as I say, I think there's maybe one quite significant exception. But in this the film, first flight, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah. Other than that, there is so little iconic imagery in this film. And like you look at Watchmen and, you know, there are iconic shots in that film, but they're pretty much all taken from the comic, mm. you know. I think a lot of the film, though, and we'll, we'll get into actually the now the nitty-gritty of discuss, discussing it, I think a lot of the film is, from a visual standpoint, really beautifully realised. And, like, Seb, you talked about maybe not liking some of the stuff on Krypton, but obviously, Reese, you, you're a big fan of that sequence. Yeah. And I... I really liked in that sequence, especially on the rewatch, how, firstly, how well thought out the kind of realization of that world was, even if it didn't make a lot of sense with kind of like the, the kids being bred for specific functions in the society and the codex and the, but like in the, that they had the, they had the futuristic ships, but they also had kind of like costumes that looked historic, Egyptian, almost regal. These, yeah, it, I really liked the visuals of that yeah. world, and I wonder the way why. the computers work. That kind of um, uh, sort of ball bearings thing. I love that. <laughs> Those things yes. that you put your hand in to yeah. make it. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. exactly what they like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I will. I'll concede that I think I'm probably in a minority in, in not liking that take on crypto because a lot of people, and even a lot of people who otherwise have big problems with the movie, have said that they like that stuff. And I can completely see the point behind it. I think it's one of the. It is one of the better thought out things about the film because what i think it's doing it well for the, there are kind of two things firstly it is building krypton as this ridiculously over the top world that throws in lots of different kind of fantastical tropes and what it particularly works in is it kind of takes you know because when you would kind of first see krypton in the original comics um it was very much about being this sort of 1950s futurist and what's what we now think of as retro futurist it was this big gleaming sci-fi thing um and then obviously you've got the the crystal snow version from the the christopher reeve movies and and the kind of crystalline cold scienciness of the the 80s comics that's that's doing something a little bit different and i think that this version is taking that original vision of krypton as this just this unfathomably over-the-top idea-driven society and what it's folding into it is the recent popularity of your lord of the rings your game of thrones you know it's bringing fantasy in Mm. in a way that you know back in the kind of 1950s that wouldn't have been something that was so popular and so wouldn't be an imagery that fold in so i like that and i don't mind that you've got spaceships along with flying dragon thingies I, i i can see that what they're going for is this is this majestic world it's just that on a personal level um, I really would like to see someone finally do on screen that 1950s retro futurist version of Krypton. <laughs> I just feel, I feel um, like we're going to come up, we're going to come up against that throughout this conversation. Oh, we will. So, yeah, so, but it's, hey, but it, you know, it, merits, it, it, it's not what I want from a yeah, Superman but, movie. But, it, but this is not, you <laughs> didn't make this Superman movie. So but it's also, it's, I think, I think it's a, a problem that the film struggles with, with 
this version of Krypton, which is to present it in one sense as this is this amazing, beautiful society and world that that Superman comes from. But part of the whole point of the film is that their society is deeply flawed and problematic because, you know, they have this, um, you know, this kind of breeding system that's, you know, that has essentially, you know... um, damage them as a society and you're supposed to you know when zod wants to essentially replace the earth with krypton that needs to be a bad thing and i think maybe the film is 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 going for a deliberate i know it is but i think i you know the whole point is that the rest of the film establishes krypton as kind of not that great but you've got this kind of opening stuff where it's like wow look look at krypton isn't it amazing it's like it's kind of like the last throes of an empire isn't it it's like the the roman empire look at look at this look how grand this is and what it and which which is something that they have kind of drawn from from the comics that the comics have done before i mean you know the kind of the 80s comics the john byrne stuff as i say presented krypton as this world that was full of this amazing technological advancement and you know a thousand years ago was a kind of thriving society but has now reached a point where their technological advancement has made them completely cold and detached and emotionless and i just i i mean again i'm sorry this is a personal preference thing but i kind of i like the idea of krypton being a world that he should kind of yearn for that you know it is somewhere where that he has lost um i i feel like the description the destruction of krypton should feel like a loss to him like when he learns about his ha- his past and his heritage obviously you know he has earth as an adopted world and he you know he loves earth and humanity and he considers himself as human in so many ways but i like the idea of there being this slight yearning in him for i come from this this amazing advanced world and it's now a lost remnant of the past you see i mean and um, that that does come back to exactly what re- just what reese just said as far as you're concerned that is not something that works for a Superman movie, but as a big sci-fi movie and as a conceit at the start, I mean, I, I think it really works in establishing, like, in establishing the Superman versus Zod, you know, and that Zod is one of these guys who has been bred as a warrior in Krypton and his entire reason for being is to protect, is to re-establish Krypton, is to further his people. Whereas because Superman is this, because Cal is the first natural birth and that he has, um, he has choice and he has opportunity that wasn't afforded to the rest of Krypton. And he is set up as this bridge between two peoples. He is Kryptonian, but in a way more human than any of his race has been in generations. And the Codex stuff is confusing in that it gets given to him, but I think it sets up a lot of the stuff well with the movie. And Reese, I mean, we were talking about, um, off mic, you were talking about how much you like how much stuff kind of how efficient the storytelling is early on in those sequences. And I mean, in, really? in the Krypton scene, <laughs> well, in the Krypton scene, I mean, you just think about how much stuff yeah. happens. It just yeah, seems like to a, take a long time to get over with. <laughs> but, I mean, if, I just think if you look at all, you, within that first 40 minutes, you have uh, just this absolute pace of story of like introduction of characters and world you get the krypton stuff in the first 20 minutes which and then you, which within that you've got four or five characters introduced like warring factions you know different creatures technologies you know all of that in 20 minutes and i, I just don't think it's dwelled on i disagree with with said when talking about the pace of that krypton I, stuff it bowls through it i i think it's certainly in the krypton sequence the amount of stuff that they get through in terms of there's a military coup and here's the history of these yeah. people and, and now we're going to send these people off to the Phantom Zone and here is Superman being born and now we're going to send him to Earth and then even after that we've got like the we've got after 
uh, Jor-El has been killed, we then get the like exploding of the planet, which looks beautiful. The the kind of the kind of implosion yeah. of Krypton because its about, core is melted. You want to talk about that iconography, Seb? That lacks here. Yeah, I, I mean, I just don't agree with that. I mean, I think um, that shot, the shot of uh, I can't remember what's his mum's name, Allura. L- Lura, like watching the planet as it, no, sorry, Lara. Lara watching the planet me. as it explodes. <laughs> you get that shot from you know from behind as she's looking out the window, and then she kind of gets wiped away by the by the flames. That's a gorgeous, yes, like that shot, yeah. a gorgeous scene. But then you get then you get the stuff when he's on the oil rig, and I think really really quickly you you establish him. In the, in, as the, as the older Superman. Present day vagabond hobo, yeah, hobo super, But as Superman. a hero as well, you know, mm. like the first thing you see him do is like this kind of big, cool Superman-y thing, even though he's not in the suit and he's got the slightly weird, like stuck on beard. Um, <laughs> but you know, saving a bunch of guys from a helicopter and then you get the, the lovely cut when he falls in the water and then that sort of switches back with him, um, back at school, young Superman learning his powers. Uh, and it just keeps on moving like that. It keeps keeps on moving, and then you get the introduction. You know, you I like the little sprinkles of you, you, the Lana, the Pete Ross, his parents. Introductions to all those characters real quick through through action, not necessarily through dialogue. Seeing how they relate to Superman, you know, um, and I guess all of that, all of that stuff kind of comes at least parallel before when the real story kicks in, which yeah. is when Superman gets to the Arctic and meets Lois for the first time. Yeah. I say that's kind of when that kicks off the events of the movie. Mm-hmm. But it, I, I have a slight problem in terms of the the structure of the film kind of related to that in the, in the terms that I, I, I've kind of always used this as a cheap gag and it's not, it's really, it's not strictly true, but it kind of, it feels like a movie that has like two or three first acts and a couple of third acts, and never has a second act, and and maybe maybe like the bit of um, Superman and Lois going up to the Kryptonian ship is that second act, like in a real. Mm. But it's, it feels like you've got the you've got a first act on Krypton, you've got a first act of flashback stuff of Superman, and you've got a first act of Superman getting Mundane, yeah. find uh, Cal or Clark on Earth discovering he is Cal yeah. and putting on the suit for the first time, and then you've got. A big fight in Smallville, which feels like a third act, and then it stops, and then five minutes later starts again in Metropolis, and that feels like a third act. And just structurally, I, I always kind of felt like that I wasn't quite with the movie; that it just mm. didn't. That the the narrative felt fractured enough that for me it didn't have that through line and that pace. And I agree with you that especially, you know, if you can put three first acts into a movie and do that kind of concurrently and get across all that information. That is, you know, that's that's efficient in a way, and it's good. I just feel once you like cram it together with what comes over the course of the whole movie, it ends up feeling like just a movie that I never, I never really felt comfortable with, and and that and the, and the pacing never really, never really felt right. And I and I, I, yeah, I do kind of find this a movie that is a slog to sit through. Um, let's finish off the Krypton stuff, Seb. You had one last point on Krypton. You you guys think that it kind of moves along at a decent pace, and and that's fair enough. The reason I think why I think it feels so slow is that it it devotes so much time to this conflict between Jor-El and Zod, hmm. and it's something that I then think infects the rest of the film and is a massive problem with the film. And nothing sums it up better than the fact that you have a scene where Zod kills Jor-El moments before Krypton's about to be destroyed. <laughs> yeah. And we know, as a movie... Because no one going to see a Superman film is not aware that Krypton is about to explode, because it's Superman. Everyone knows that. So 
it just seems that the film is so concerned with giving us a Jorel story. And it's like, we don't need to feel Jorel's death separately from everybody else's. Jorel is not that important. It's it's Kalel who's important. And yet, like, throughout the whole film, through the whole thing of, you know, giving him the, the hologram, and I know that you have the hologram head in the original film with Marlon Brando, but this feels a bit more like they really wanted to make Russell Crowe as Jorel as much the hero of this film. And I think that the overall arc of the film is far more about the conflict between Jorel and Zod than it is Kal-El and Zod. And that just feels like a misstep. Just- well, I think it works purely as a beat of showing how evil and how... Yeah, but moments earlier he'd wiped out the council people you know it's yeah like, but i think you don't it's, need it to be shows, told how evil zod it's, is it's a know? great kind of like it's a moment that michael shannon almost gets in everything where it's not even like he respects and likes jor-el there is there is the sense that like he he under he respects him as a great scientist of their world yeah but it's kind of his rage that overcomes him that leads to killing Jorel. And I kind of, I kind of disagree on the movie wanting Jorel to be as important as Cal, Cal, because I think what it does it is it establishes that, and this is something that the movie loses track of, but it establishes this idea of these, of Clark being the son of two parents and of two similar but conflicting ideologies and that they kind of both feed into him. So he, he kind of, he kind of takes some of what Kevin Costner dad gives him and hmm. takes some of what Russell Crowe dad gives him and kind of becomes what, what, uh, Jorel wanted him to be the whole time, which is this bridge between two people. He is part Kryptonian, part human, and he reflects that. I think the movie completely loses track of that by the time you track through to the end. Um, but also some, some of the stuff that I found interesting with, Jorel right at the end of the first act and I wonder whether this was supposed to be well sorry right at the end of the Krypton sequences the first first act yeah I I thought that I thought it was interesting that Jorel kills he kills on Krypton so that's I was wondering whether that was something that the movie was going to set up I was trying to I was trying to track the through line of Superman killing at the end and wondering whether that was something that they carefully considered and I kind of had to come to the conclusion that no, it wasn't. Because Jorel kills and it's just kind of thrown away and forgotten about. But also, Zod gets really angry when he's being captured and he gets really angry and he spits in the faces of the council members when they say that they're not going to kill him. And he's kind of disgusted by the fact that they don't have the, like, just the balls or the gumption to kill him, that they're going to, you know, uh, send him to the Phantom Zone instead. And it seems like, if anything, Zod's ideology is that, you know, like... Which is what the position he puts Superman in the end. It's like, come on, have the balls to kill me. And the difference is that Superman does. And that is something that I, like, why I think that I don't, I don't personally care whether Superman kills or doesn't kill. I understand that's very important to Superman fans. But for me, it just, it makes the end of the movie feel like a victory for Zod. And that, that is really, that's a really, really (laughs) strange moment that, Superman lets humanity into his life, whereas a Kryptonian wouldn't kill, but Superman does, and it just I mean, it just feels it feels wrong. We can we you know we will talk about all of the problems that I have with with Superman killing at the end of this film, but if I put aside the you know the sort of my strongly held beliefs about Superman and the fact that Superman should not kill purely from a dramatic point of view for this film, the fact that he kills Zod means that he does not win. <laughs> you know, yeah. like yeah it. it, it 
it, it's a defeat for him, and that's a bigger problem than the fact that it's morally wrong that he kills yeah. because he's Superman, for me. And again, that scene comes down to dodgy staging where you know so many people said with you know with superman's power set there is so many Mm. other options that were available to him that he chooses not to use and i think that's just paul a a poorly executed scene from snyder's point of view yeah um but yeah we'll 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 get to that (laughs) That, that's coming (laughs) let's stop let's let's stop this rabbit hole we're going down um but let's go to earth (sighs) through space with some epic hans zimmery drummy score Reese wax, wax lyrical for a little bit about Hans Zimmer's score. You love it, right? Love the score. In fact, um, the track, I think it's called, it's the track that plays as Clark cycles to the Daily Planet at the end and then plays over the credits. Yeah, and it's the track from the first trailer, maybe the second trailer. I think when when the movie came out, that was my, that was like the song that I had on repeat for about a month afterwards. You were walking up the street just like... Yeah, really was. 100% I was. I remember sort of, I'd get the bus home after a night at the pub and I'd play that song and I'd feel like I was just king of the world it was incredible um, I, yeah I love the score I love that tune and to be honest actually now if you said if you said just the word Superman music to me I would I think I might go to that oh I can almost first. like feel Seb bristling no I know I, I, I mean I, you know yeah I will I, I can't say I have any problems with the score in this film but probably my only problem is the fact that on that first trailer they used a piece of music from Lord of the Rings that I didn't know was from Lord of the Rings and I thought it was absolutely brilliant and really fit that trailer really well. And so I was disappointed to learn that it was from a different <laughs> film and so wasn't going to be in Man of Steel. Other than that, because then I remember when the next trailer came out and it had that Zimmer theme. And he manages to do, he manages to do having three notes that say Superman mm-hmm. and have it be different from the John Williams, but it's recognizable. It's that duh, 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 that he does. And it really works. And, you know, throughout the film, the score is great. You know, Hans Zimmer is great. And it's a really good score. And it it does achieve a really difficult job, Mm -hmm. which is to be a new score for a Superman film, where most people are going to want to see a Superman film and go, where's the John Williams music? At no point do you think, where's the John Williams music in this film? And that's, you know, I still think, obviously, the original Superman theme is the greatest movie theme ever composed. But this does not do a bad job at all. In fact, it does a great job of fitting this movie and you know it's one of the best things about the film and the score could almost have been designed exclusively for the first flight sequence and that would have been you know it's Mm -hmm. just kind of stick it hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In the rest of the film, but basically we've done it for this bit right here. Um, and excitingly, I've heard that so Hans Zimmer is scoring Batman v Superman, but is co-doing it with Junkie XL and suggestion that it's hmm. going to be different composers for Batman and Superman, which I think which is a shame because actually because Hans Zimmer has also done a fantastic Batman score. Like, I mean, as much as I like the score to this, my favourite thing that Hans Zimmer has done is the Dark Knight Rises stuff. But Henry Cavill, guys. So we are introduced to him as Vagabond Superman, strolling around, well, save it, beardy, saving people from an oil rig, emerging from the water cut like a freaking steak. <laughs> oh, God, he's got muscles where, like, I didn't even know you could grow those muscles. He's, he's got muscles where even even Rob Liefeld didn't know. <laughs> muscles on muscles on muscles. Well, so me and, me and Reese spent a good 20 minutes 20, discussing minutes, Henry Cavill's yeah. body last week, last night, and it's... It's not even like so Chris Pratt or Chris Hemsworth in a Marvel movie. Like it's kind of theirs. Kind of looks like chiselled for aesthetic reasons. They look, they look really muscly and great. But Cavill just looks huge. Like there are muscles everywhere, and it's not being done to like give his pecs definition or to make his biceps bulge. It's just. Where can we put muscle? We want to put it everywhere, and he looks like a freaking man of steel. Yeah. Go on, Cavill. What work? And from the from the anecdote he's told a million times about when he first met Russell Crowe when he was a kid and got the advice that set him on the road to becoming an actor, which is a great anecdote. You know, it, it did the Man of Steel press tour the world of good. <laughs> um, but for a kid who used to be like a, a pudgy little teenager to turn into that fine specimen of man, I mean, I was impressed. <laughs> did, I mean, don't like he's... the hairy chest. Could have done with a bit of a wax job, I think. Sure. But maybe an S. That. Waxed into his chest. Ooh. They, they, they don't have bad. chest wax in Canada, though. He's, he's, he's in the wild north true, of Canada at that point. So yeah. many Canadian actors in this movie. Once you've seen two Battlestar Galactica actors, you know that we're deep in Canada <laughs> at this deep point. Deep in Toronto. <laughs> but, Reese, you, Reese, you really like the hopping around the Vagabond Superman yeah. stuff, right? Even, uh, I remember the, the, the one sequence from all that Vagabond Superman stuff that I didn't like was the kind of the petty, like not fighting the guy I in the bar, like but that. then doing the stuff to the car. Oh, it said liked it. So. Oh. Yeah. No, no I mean, people have, criticized, <laughs> people have criticized that, but you know, there's a lot, you know, it's not a thing that an established Superman would do. An established Superman would rise above that. But, you know, there's so much in this film that's supposed to be about him learning and finding his feet. And what I really like about it, firstly, you know, I really like when it's in the bar and he just stands there and takes it. That is classic Superman, and that is what Superman would do. But then the fact that he just has that little moment is like, well, yeah, he's he's getting to be that Superman, but he's not quite there yet, and he's still quite young, and actually he does take a bit of petty revenge. And let's not forget that in Superman 2, which is generally heralded as one of the greatest superhero movies of all time and a supposedly perfect interpretation of Superman, which it mostly is but isn't quite, he beats the shit out of a, a trucker who's picked on him when he didn't have powers. So <laughs> it's mean, not out sure. of keeping with stuff that's been... And in fact, I, I do feel like that scene is kind of a deliberate nod yeah. to yeah. Superman 2. Are you on board with that, Rhys? You- yeah, because I, th- I think for me it's it's that's a bit of a... Superman power fantasy chunk of the film where kind of you can you can really imagine yourself as 
as a, that as a character with that power set, kind of mm. wandering around, you know, solving mysteries. I feel like there's a whole there's a whole prequel movie trilogy which is just about bearded Superman, like kind of well, wandering around the United States, like getting into scrapes <laughs> and and being super strong, but sort of trying to hide his powers. Like that's a, a that's a it's a little chunk of the film, but it's it really captured it, my imagination. Uh, and then they don't want to they kind of move on, and it's and it keeps that for me. It kept that pace up in the first half of the movie. I really like it. it if anything, it's one of my biggest problems with the film that it doesn't really have enough of that because you get a couple of... I mean, the the oil rig scene is great. Right. It's like the first time you see mm-hmm. Superman as an adult On in fire. this film, he's rescuing a load mm-hmm. of people yeah. and putting himself in harm's way to rescue people. And it's like, yeah, great, okay, he's not in the costume yet, but that is Superman. Um, and I would have happily had more of the film be spent with him going around the world mm-hmm. using his powers and saving people because one of my biggest problems structurally and in terms of how this presents Superman is that basically... He becomes Superman finally, you know, he sort of he gets the costume and he learns to fly. And then immediately afterwards, Zod turns up and goes, You've got this alien living among you. Um but at that point he's just like an urban legend. It's like, you know, Lois Lane has talked about it. and you you get the impression that there's been lots of off screen stuff because Lois Lane's been following him around, but essentially, you know, he's not established yet. And when the Zod plot kicks in, I don't think you can feel the sort of the wrench that the world would have of um, there's this alien among us, um, we, you know, um, that someone's come looking for and we're all under threat. Because I think what would be so much better is if everyone knows that it's Superman and Superman has been there doing good. Yeah, but again. And you've seen him flying around, saving people and stopping crime and doing all of that. You just don't get any of Superman being Superman. But that's not. Before Zod turns But that's up. not this movie. And again, that's something well, no, that this movie never attempts like to do. I don't like about it. <laughs> yeah, but it's so. I mean, because I. I don't want any more of him wandering around doing it because I kind of think, well, I mean, I feel like the movie kind of doesn't have the zippiest pace through that scene. No, but there's there's other stuff I'd cut in favour of. (laughs) I'd cut, I'd, I'd cut the stuff with him younger, the flashbacks. I, what, what I kind of like about that sequence, and again, it goes back to this idea of Clark with two dads, and I think it works in the cutting between the flashbacks and the present day stuff because. You've, you've established at that point, this is a Clark who his one dad, his one ideology that's been drilled into him is the Kevin Costner dad, the Park Kent ideology, which is, um, I mean, I was trying to keep a track of what his different parents had told him. So I'm just looking at my notes here. Basically, Costner's messages are that he needs to keep himself secret and then maybe he will have to let people die for that to be the case. He's, but he eventually is going to change the world, but people are going to fear him and he is here for a reason and he needs to find out what that reason is. And so I think when you're kind of flashing between the oil rig sequence and the working in the bar and then retreating to, to the Arctic to find that, that, the, the ship, I think you do have a sense of the idea of that Superman that he kind of, he has, he wants to save people, but what's been drilled into him is that it might not be the best thing for him to do that yet. And that he needs to really discover what the reason for doing that is. And that really, so you've kind of got half a Superman at that point and it takes him finding Jor-El, Russell Crowe on that ship to get the second half of that. We kind of find out what that reason is, realize that yes, the world probably is going to fear him, which again kind of works with the world not knowing Superman yet. And the, they're kind of awakening to him being, well, with his presence also comes this threat. So we should immediately fear him. 
Um, and I, I think that kind of works in the, in the flashback structure in that point of the movie. Like I say, I think as soon as kind of Zod arrives or as soon as, as soon as the fighting starts happening between Smallville and Metropolis, we entirely lose that kind of idea of what the two fathers had imparted on them and what Superman had learned and tracking his, tracking his kind of discovery of character in favor of two big action scenes that really say nothing about the character of Clark, Cal, Superman. But it's interesting you said that you don't like those flashback sequences because Reese, again, fair to say, big fan of the flashbacks. We get power discovery in the school. We get saving kids from a bus. We get staying on the floor when some kids are going to beat him up. That great you, bit when he takes his hand away and he's, he's, he's yeah. crushed the pipe. Do you have, um, do you have particular favourites from that before Seb tells bus, you why he doesn't like I them? I think the, the bus crash is, is the, is the best one of those. It's so well staged. You know, again, you want to talk about iconography. I think that's a, that's a scene filled with, with great little moments. Like when he goes back from the bus and then he kind of comes up with Pete Ross. The little moments between him and Lana that are, you know, completely just sort of sweet and, and comic references sort of. Um, yeah, I think that's a lovely sequence. Uh, you know, I, and, and the bit, with him in, at school, hearing and seeing all the X-ray stuff, uh, that's great. It just kind of, you know, much like the uh, hairy adult Superman wandering around, it's just it just humanizes him. It places mm. it places me personally uh, in in a frame of mind where I I understand this guy. I'm anticipating now Seb's reason for hating the sequence being entirely Park End and everything he stands for in relation to <laughs> Superman. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> no, because you know, some. I mean, I th- I do think some of those things drag. I, I, the one in the school, the stuff with the powers is quite well done. But the problem I have with the, the one world's in the too big. Is that it's it's the world's too big. It seems to exist solely to set up something later in the film that has utterly no significance, but that the people making the film think is quite cool. Which is that he has learned by being on Earth for a while mm. to tune out the extra senses. So when the Kryptonians arrive, they have to wear special helmets because um, otherwise they get overwhelmed. And then eventually Zod concentrates and doesn't have to wear a special helmet anymore. Well, BFD, you know, it's like, it, it, there's just no, no good reason it, for that it, whole no. conceit of the Kryptonians having to wear the special helmets to even be there. On the one hand, you you you, you want to display Superman's powers in a nice non-exposition-y way if you can rather than say oh he's got laser eyes and he can see through things yeah he's super um, and and secondly you you know you, you don't have a ton of screen time in this movie the movie is packed with characters and stuff so you want to yeah, do exactly. a bit that's of, why I think they're wasting sure, but you want to do a, you want to create that uh, relationship between him and his mum which will be important later on um, and finally I think it also gets to that uh, that choice that he continually has to make between the Krypton and the Earth, between his humanity and his alienness, between you know his new home and his old home, uh, it get it's it's about that. You know the way he kind of runs away from those people into that little room by himself. He you know he shoes everybody else. He's like, no, I'm I'm strange. I'm I'm a loner. I'm I'm an alien. You know, he doesn't know that at that point. But and then it has to his mom has to come and like tries to teach him how to get through that moment, and it, and it works. I, I, I think because also actually the, the whole thing with with it being kind of in front of the you know and all the class being aware of oh Clark Kent is a freak and all of this it's a, a, a 
general problem I have with the Smallville stuff, and I don't have as much of a problem with it with the bus crash because I do think the bus crash bus crash scene is a is a good scene and is well done. And is if you're going to do flashbacks of Clark Kent as a kid discovering his powers, mm-hmm. that's a great yeah. scene to do. It does create this problem for the rest of the film and going forwards for the character in general, which is that the second Superman turns up, particularly when he turns up fighting people in Smallville. Everyone in Smallville is going to know that that's Clark Kent. Such a and, nerd point. But, <laughs> come on, come on. but there is a bigger, nitpicking... there is a bigger conversation. I think we can have about the way this film treats the idea of a secret identity, and it may surprise you to think that I am not completely down on yeah, it. No so it's a it's a it's a wider thing about secret identities in general in in the modern day. But um, no, I mean, just coming back to the flashbacks. I mean, to yeah, Park Kent, Seb, why do you why do you <laughs> individually hate Park Kent so much? I hate Park Kent because if you have got a Park Kent who tells Superman that it's more important to let people, including himself die than it is to reveal himself to the world then you might as well have an uncle ben that says to spider-man with great power comes a great opportunity to bully people and make loads of money it is the complete and total opposite of everything that clark should learn from his parents on he's just a man he's just a father there's that i i I find myself moved when there's when he gets but he's not just a man and just a father he's pa kent he is like no he's a guy the kents are so responsible for making superman the hero that he is in the same way that Uncle in Ben is so responsible for making Spider-Man the hero that he is. myth of the Superman. This is a movie <laughs> no, about... In, a, in, this is a dad, this is a, an in, adopted like, son. every is, interpretation of Superman ever. Apart from this one. The, the, this is no. a story of... You have... You know, it's not fair to... Keep, does it, does it work more... Does it work to its own aims? Does it work more as Pa Kent being a guy who just wants to look after his son and understands that one day his son is going to have to step up to the plate, but only when he and the world around him is ready. Whereas, so, kind of, Parkend is the father he needs at that stage of his life, but that when Jor-El reappears, that he's the father he needs to then take that step and reveal himself. Because Clark has only kind of had half of the parentage he needs at that point, that Park Kent works from that point, or did no? Just it just... may well be what they're going for, but it just it just leads to what I think is just an utterly ridiculous scene, which is you know Clark <laughs> standing there and watching in, in horror while his dad says it's okay son I'm going to let this tornado swallow well, me up and the thing is within that scene you could you could almost have that exact same scene and okay I, you know I, I don't generally like the line of criticism of here's what I would have done differently because I think yeah, you know <laughs> but but, but <laughs> that scene kind of sets up what could be um a different kind of message that he has to take away from it because they, you know, it's not in every version, but a, a quite key part in a lot of versions of the Superman mythos is that at some point when Clark is, is relatively young, his father dies and there's absolutely nothing he can do about it. And I mean, Joe, you've read all star Superman. You've read that sixth issue of all star Superman, which I think is the best telling of that particular mm. strand. And it's the moment where he realises that despite everything he can do, he can't save everybody. Sometimes people will die and sometimes there'll be people who he'll care about and he can't let it destroy him. He can't let it defeat him and like because he could take the attitude of, well, well if people are going to die anyway, what's the point in me even trying? And he doesn't. And in that scene, you've got all the components for a scene where Clark suddenly has to choose between rescuing a load of people who are stuck under a bridge that might collapse or something and rescuing his dad who's over on the other side and he 
he ends up making a choice to save more people than the person who means some, something more to him. And that would, for me, would have made Park Kent's death carry some kind of meaning that he would take with him into the rest of his life as Superman. As it is, all all that Park Kent's death does to me is to delay him being Superman. Well, I think what what it what it does, and the reason it's there, is that it is. Clark finally embracing all the lessons that Park Kent has imparted on him in this movie. But I think they're bad lessons. Well, that's 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 fine, <laughs> that's but that's the what thing. the scene does. Why? I mean, why no, I think that's the completely what it does. That's work. completely what it's there for. But but why? I, yeah. Why I think the scene doesn't work. Why it seems so dumb, and why like people who like to beat up on Man of Steel particularly like to beat up on this scene is because it's a dog. Hmm. It's because he goes to save a dog, like. The, the the part of of Clark not going to save his dad because he's finally learned the lesson that his dad has imparted on him thematically makes sense makes sense with what we've seen in Park End in every scene is there and I think Costner's fantastic I think he's, he's he's great casting for the version of the character that they're presenting now if Costner had gone to save like say like a baby or had gone to like free a family from a trapped car for that family to then run back, but him to get trapped underneath it or something like that. Just for the scene to more convincingly play out that Costner has sacrificed himself for a decent reason, not to save a fucking dog. Hmm. I mean, I'll probably refer to again later on um, some stuff that was written after the movie, a blog post by Mark Wade, a uh, comics writer, um, where he, you know, he wrote one of the most eloquent kind of criticisms of the end of the film and and what happens at the end of the film and why it's wrong. Um, but I find quite interesting that while I agree with a lot of what Mark Wade has to say about the film, he was really positive about that scene and about the Jonathan Kent stuff. And I'd like to kind of because the reason why he said is kind of a different reason from anything that that you or Reese have said about it, which is that he says that. Um, he loves the scene where Clark doesn't save Park Kent because Goya did something magical. He says he, he, he took two moments that individually I would have hated and he welded them together into something amazing. Out of context, I would have hated that Clark said, you're not my real dad or whatever he says right before the tornado. Mm-hmm. And out of context, I would have loathed that Clark stood by frozen with helplessness as the tornado killed Jonathan. And that's the problem that I have with it. It's the problem is that even though it's what he told him to do, to me, Clark Kent would still go and save his dad, anything else be damned. But what Mark Wade says is, the reason that that beat worked is because Clark had just said you're not my dad yeah. the last real words he said to part Tearful Clark choosing to go against his every instinct in that last second because he had to show his father he trusted him after all because he had to show Pa that Pa could trust him and that Clark had learned Clark did love him that worked for me hugely it was a very brave story choice but it worked it worked largely on the shoulders of Cavill who sold it it worked yeah. as a tragic rite of passage I can see what he's saying there and in that sense <laughs> I, I, I would agree <laughs> it's just the, the lesson the, my bigger problem is the lesson it, it's not what Clark does in that scene Mark Wade has actually explained why Clark doing what he does in that scene works and and that's fine it still doesn't explain why Pa Kent does what he does in that scene and that is my bigger problem with that scene Mm. and my bigger problem with all of the Pa Kent stuff and it's nothing against Kevin it's like you cast Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent that's a great piece of casting he you know he's gonna do exactly what you need him to do it's just that I don't think this movie gives him what you need to do as Jonathan Kent. Well, so, well, I mean, I, I kind of agree with that quote you just read. I think that, like, that... I, I, I buy all of that. I really, I really yeah. like that interpretation of the scene. Moving on to his second father, um, Jor-El, he tells him that he kind of believes in choice and chance and becoming in what you'd want to be and that he needs to 
test his limits and become an ideal for humanity to strive towards and help them accomplish wonders. And again, I kind of, I kind of like all that stuff on a thematic level. And it just, it just frustrates me so much that the movie spends an hour and a half placing so much importance on what Clark's two dads have taught him and then ignores it all for two big fight scenes. Because he, the, the problem is that he, he never did, like, so he, he eventually is able to out himself to the world despite, you know, you know, that humanity might fear him and all that kind of stuff. So he's kind of realized he's kind of gone against the, the stuff that Park Kent taught him because now is the time. Um, but he also doesn't show himself as an ideal to strive towards well, or, or like, no, or, he really doesn't. Or, or help yeah. humanity accomplish wonders because the wonder he accomplishes is destroying <laughs> a small town in a major metropolitan city. Yeah, I'd I'd like to kind of play the role of James at this point, by which I mean I'm going to steal a point that James often makes, but I think it's an entirely valid point. Um, the thing about this film is that, you, as you have said, there are themes that this film is trying to get across. Whether or not it succeeds in them is another matter, but you can see that there that there is a theme to this film, and it, and a lot of it is is what you've just said, but. It is a big superhero action film. So its big climactic scenes have to be big climactic action scenes. So for that to work, you need to have a director and or a writer who can convey themes through action, which we've talked about on this podcast before, by which I mean, it's as I say, it's, it's James's big bugbear. Um, it, it's rare that you get a big action film that can effectively convey its themes through the action scenes and the fight scenes, and it, and it's great when it's done well. Zack Snyder, it would appear, has no idea how to convey themes through action. So in place of the scenes where all of that stuff you've said should be happening and could be worked into an action sequence, you've just got big spectacle that doesn't actually achieve anything. And you've anything got two instead. of them back-to-back, which don't yeah. really achieve anything noticeably different other than destroying Clark's two homes. Reese frowned then. Reese frowned at what I said. <laughs> I, 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 I just think you're not placing enough value on the spectacle. In between the Smallville fight and the, the, the Zod fight is where I think you actually have the, the even bigger problem with this, which is, and like, cause I think it's something that would seem to be really easily fixable, right? So you have got a big machine on one side of the world that is smashing up Metropolis. And you've got a big machine on the other side of the world that's having the same effect on the other side of the world, but in the middle of the ocean. When you are Aquaman's putting this not plot be together, easy, Seb. in your yeah, no, it's, not. Dad, dad, um, it's a shame nobody cares about Aquaman. Oh. Maybe that's where he'll come in. Like you have all this stuff I about think he will. Superman I think he about will. Bruce Wayne being annoyed because Wayne Tower was destroyed, and then you've got Aquaman popping you up. Killed and going, all the bloody fishes uh, <laughs> in the ocean. <laughs> but so you've got a Superman who you want to show as being a light to humanity and inspiring wonder so why do you have his biggest most triumphant moment in the entire movie which is when he fights through the pain and through his own limits to destroy this big machine why does that happen on the other side of the world where nobody can see it while people are busy being flattened in metropolis i'm going to agree with both of you here because i agree that is that kind of flies in the face of inspiring humanity by doing it so far away Having said that, like I, when he's fighting the metal arm, I'm so bored. But when he's fighting against the pain and flying up through the blue light, yeah, that's, that's spectacle. Good scene. Is of the world. But it would be an even better scene if anyone could see him doing it. Yes, that's it. right. That's right. <laughs> Where but are you it, getting this inspiring the world thing from, though? Just it, it, it's it's literally Jarell, what his dad what says, says to him. Do. 
He says you need to inspire yeah. humanity. You need to show them wonders. You can in, make in them better. In a speech better. that's really good because it's Nick from Grant Morrison. And it takes place in the middle of the best scene in the film, which is the, you know, him learning to fly. But that's, which that's is the, which is the other we should for. mention, the big spectacle moment of the movie. I don't know how to talk about that more than to say for a solid two minutes, the movie is flying. It's the, it's, it's, it's everything I would imagine that any Superman fan or non-Superman fan wants from that movie, which is just, yeah, I, and I would, spectacle. I would completely agree with that and that's what Snyder's capable of Zack Snyder is capable of doing that kind of stuff I mean aside from the fact that the costume's bobbins I'd rather he was doing it in a better costume but apart from that what are you talking about the costume's um, great it's really (laughs) (laughs) do do you have a problem with the lack of fans Seb it's it's such a superficial argument that there's not really any let's not have it Um, I guess the one big thread of this movie that we haven't talked about is Amy Adams's Lois Lane and I kind of find her use in this movie strange in that she doesn't seem like any recognisable version of Lois Lane that I've ever encountered, having encountered like Terry Hatcher and a couple of others. Um, But I think that the movie does a really great job of selling her as a hugely competent journalist and, um, and someone who I think strikes up a good rapport with Henry Cavill as Superman and I kind of like her and him. To, I like the scene when they're together in the interrogation room, the way that they bounce off each other. And I like the kiss. And I know a lot of people really don't like the kiss, but it's a moment where Superman thinks that the threat has gone. And it's kind of like a nice moment of pause and respite in the middle of all of that fucking carnage that you get for the final hour of the movie. Um, and I like it. So, I mean, Reese, you, how sold are you on Amy Adams? And Lois and the kiss. I, I kind of think this movie, and I've uh, I criticise you guys for uh, talking about a better version of the film. You know what changes you would make. <laughs> I'm I'm I think a better version of this movie exists without Lois Lane in it. Really, just yeah, without her completely. Kind of, I just, I mean, she's in it because you have to have Lois Lane in a Superman movie. Yes, and Amy mm. Adams is very watchable. She's charismatic. She kind of fits a a, a spunky version of a of a, of a Lois Lane character, but. I just, I just feel like there's a lot going on, <laughs> and she, you know, she, she sort of gets shoehorned into, you know, she gets shoehorned into the bit when, she, when they, when he goes up to the spaceship, shoehorned into the, like, why is she on the plane at the end? You know, yeah. what, like, why? Mm. Um, the romance, so she can have a damsel moment, I guess. Yeah, the, ro- yeah, the romance well, and is also not... so that, so that she can have a moment where she doesn't know that you need to rotate something a few more degrees, and then Professor Hamilton rotates it a few exactly. more degrees, and it works. I mean, it's, yeah. So the, the way that they try and involve the kind of human non Krypton powered characters in the conflict, mm. I just don't buy any of it. You know, I don't buy the Christopher Maloney stuff at all. Yeah, could not give less of two shits about what any of those army guys are doing. And all, um, and all I do the, like him though. I think I think it helps liking sure, yeah. him. But, but and all all of the um, war room yeah. stuff we kind of it's coming in on the RSS feeds. <laughs> all of all of that <laughs> yeah. bobbins. And like you said said the guy who calls Superman Superman for the first time and <sighs> Yeah, it it just yeah, I'm. I'm not. Convinced how do, how do on... you manage to under so badly undersell? And I know you can tell they're doing it deliberately, just to offhandedly. The very first time the word Superman is said in the film is so offhanded, but it's no, it shouldn't be. <laughs> well, Seb, Seb, before we before because I, I there's something I want to raise in in regards to the like role of the military in this film. Yeah, but well, I want to yeah. first get the opinions of a Lois Lane expert, given that you <laughs> named your firstborn child after this character. <laughs> 
no, so I, I am a fan of Lois as a character generally, and I bow to very few people in all my admiration and affection for Amy Adams as well. I, you know, I was really pleased when she was cast as Lois. Mm. All of that said, I'm a bit disappointed with her in this film. And actually, I'm going to, weirdly, I'm going to disagree with Reese and defend the film from a <laughs> criticism that Reese has made of it, which turn up for the books. Um, but I think, I, I, what I like about her role in this film is the role that she plays in the story. There has never, to my knowledge, been a version of the Superman story where right from the outset, like where she first meets him as Clark, as a superpowered Clark, before he's Superman, and when he becomes Superman, she already knows yeah. that he's Superman. I like that. And I really like that plot strand. I like it as a fresh interpretation of their relationship. I like the way she does the the investigative work and finds him in Smallville and digs mm. him up. And I really like when she first encounters him back in Smallville at that graveyard, that rapport that they have based on the fact that she's met him previously in that really weird situation in the ship and stuff. That like that scene to me is the best scene of their relationship in the whole film, the the way that they click. Yeah. One one of the reasons actually why I'm kind of disappointed that the next Man of Steel, you know, the next Superman film is not Man of Steel 2, but is, despite all that I disliked about this film. The, the really great Daily Planet scene at the end. Yeah, I, and I really wanted to see that explored further because what I find interesting about this film is that it's so generally so actively re- rejects the idea of a superhero secret identity. What it says instead is you can either live entirely in secret and not really successfully be a superhero or you can come out into the open. That's the kind of dichotomy and the choice that it presents Clark with and ultimately he comes out into the open as Superman. And it's only really at the end that he goes, oh, all right, I will have a secret identity. Now, I, I love Clark Kent and I love the idea of Clark Kent and it, it is an integral part of the Superman mythos and I don't think you can really do... Superman without Superman also having a secret identity of Clark Kent. But I think that even comics, never mind the movies, you'll see them starting to move away and they are starting to move away from the idea of a sustainable secret identity. But I think writers are starting to feel restricted by blocks that it play and the breaks that it places on a story when you've constantly got to have oh i need to stop and oh this is getting in the way of my day-to-day life and i need to be careful to hide my identity i do think there's a place for secret identity stories but i don't think they have to be the default i think if you're doing batman batman's got to be bruce wayne under a mask and nobody knows that he's bruce wayne and as i say i i wouldn't want to you know what's going to happen in two weeks now (laughs) a movie is going to come out which like reveals that Reveals yeah, that everyone yeah. knows he's Bruce um, Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> but just because we've just come back to the original point of whether Lois works or not, there's something curiously flat about a lot of her performance in this. And I didn't think I'd ever say that about Amy Adams, but she feels a bit disinterested for a lot of the film. And when she's not directly interacting with Cavill, like those scenes were, yeah, I don't like any of the stuff of, where yeah. she's on her own. It's just, yeah, it just doesn't really work and I, I hope that she I mean I don't think she's going to get more to do in the next Not film because you know um, but I hope that she at least gets to do more yeah. with what she is given in the next film. Um, I'd like to talk about the um, role of the military in this movie and I think you Reese uh, Seb, you both kind of said that you don't really like that stuff. It's like, you know, kind of leave it to Superman. Yeah, it's just back to the, because it's so overstuffed to then mm. You know, at that point you're like you're like in the last sort of third or maybe the last half of the movie to then introduce 
you know, you've got Swanick, you've got his uh, female assistant, you've got the scientist, played by Richard Schiff. You know, just like a whole bunch of new characters. And they don't achieve anything, really, yeah, independently. They absolutely do not, no. And so, I mean, I think it's... I think their presence in there is kind of necessary because this movie is set up as a first contact movie from the from the point that Zod arrives. That is a first contact narrative. Um and I want to bring up a point in relation to the military that actually um, a friend of the podcast, um, Brendan Connolly, um, I was speaking to him about this movie quite a while back. Um, and um, I wanted to present this point and take on the movie because Brendan normally comes from a point of view with these kind of films, with superhero films, that for him, he doesn't care what's on the page. He doesn't care whether this is a good version of Superman or a bad version of Superman. He just wants to see a movie that is sure of the story it's telling and you know uh, and and is is doing stuff for reasons and if that if that flies completely in the face of what this character has been in a different iteration he doesn't care and so the point that he that he brought up and I'm going to quote that quote him here because this was from an email exchange we had maybe a year ago um, he said, one of my favourite things about Man of Steel is that Superman was a useless, morally weak murderer who also allowed tens, if not hundreds of thousands to people to die as, quotes collateral damage. The war in Metropolis was just like the war in the Middle East, just closer to home, but no less stupid. And Superman was a prick about it, but a fairly subtle kind of prick. He was sort of in the right, but that doesn't make his actions okay. The big fucking wrecking ball... That's America's favourite son for you. <laughs> and I kind of love that interpretation. It would never occur to me watching the movie. But, I mean, I wonder what you guys think about an interpretation of this movie that Superman as America's favourite son, you know, and as as a kind of an extension of the modern military. And, you know, we've seen the kind of shots from Batman v Superman, which looks like a dream sequence, but... Batman kind of viewing the American military with Superman crests on their shoulders and like that th- there is this inexorable link between Ameri- him being American and connected to the American military and the actions that he takes in this movie. And I don't know if that's what Snyder was going for, but I find it such a fascinating mm. read on the movie that the reason that this is such a morally compromised Superman is because this isn't the America of World War Two or whatever, of coming into a war to stop the bad guys, to defeat this very obviously evil Nazis, but actually going to a more complicated situation where Zod kind of has a point and Superman kind of... And, and yes, a super, Superman... It's a bit murky of a situation. Superman is right, but he... You know, he actively in this film flies Zod into Smallville. He takes the fight away from the Kent family farm, where the only person there is his mum, mm. into a, a densely populated area. And the same thing in Metropolis, after he's destroyed yep, the God Engine, right through to a building. he just yep. flies them through <laughs> buildings because, you know, who cares? He's got a fight that he needs to have. And that, yeah, that idea of him as a wrecking ball and that that kind of is... That kind of is the American military of, of 2013, I guess. And so I wonder what you guys make of that reading and whether you think that that is something that Snyder could have been going for. Well, if it was what he was going for, then he's an even bigger asshole than <laughs> I would have pegged him as already. Like, I'm not saying that that's not a, a valid reading of how the film comes out, but there is no way that that's intentional because, oh, no, you know, no. Warner Brothers are not going to give you however many hundreds of million dollars to make a, a 
brand new Superman movie where the point of your Superman movie is Superman no, but not- is an appalling fascist tool of the American military machine. Because if you're doing that, and people have done that before, by which I mean Frank Miller did it in Dark Knight Returns, then you're someone who doesn't really like Superman. You know? Okay, but, and- but, but there's no way you can look at the scene just after the world engine in Metropolis crashes and, and, uh, Perry White and the Perry and the Deadly Planet characters are covered in that gray dust. And it's basically New York on. Oh, it's not. It's nine. There's no way. There's no way you can. There's no way you can look at that movie at at that moment in in a film and not think that there's a that's a politically charged. And and lots of superhero movies have kind of lots of blockbusters and superhero movies have kind of lent on nine eleven imagery since since that point. But I don't think there's any money that any movie that has done it quite as explicitly as Man of Steel. It kind of recreates some of that news footage shots and i know Avengers i know james hates it. that about this movie sure. he's not here to get that across no. but he hates that but you're right it, it certainly suggests that you know that snyder is hinting at modern you know modern day american politics and and the fact that the military are so involved i don't believe the intent of this film is to have superman be the bad guy like he's not using superman to criticize America. But it could I don't be a, it could be a, a, a that's probably not the, that's that's not the text and that's not the main point but uh I think you just you can't argue that it's not there at all. So I think if you are, if you're directly tying Superman to America in that sense as in you know Superman does what America does then you should not be making a Superman movie because you you do not get or even like Superman if you're going to put him in that position but this does just feel to me and as I say I I feel like history has borne this out this feels to me like an audition to make a Batman movie by stealth you know I, 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 I struggle to believe that Zack Snyder was truly interested in telling a Superman story I don't think I don't think you can direct a Hollywood movie that's you know, cost two hundred million dollars over this course of two and a half years, and then direct the sequel, and then sign up to direct more of those movies. If you aren't fundamentally interested in your lead character, I just, I don't, I just but if, but if he's so interested in the lead character, why has he done a version of him that goes against so much of what Superman stands for? It's like, well, I like the surface trappings, but I don't really like the character, so I'll completely change. And this is, you know, at, at the start, you said, you know, that you you kind of disagreed with the the premise of arguing against this film as, you know, like you, what I think what you're basically saying, and other people have said this as well, and I've, I've had this conversation with Andrew, um, if your main argument against this film is this isn't the right version of Superman because it changes stuff from the comic, that's not necessarily a valid argument. But, I mean, first of all, our podcast is about how the films relate to the <laughs> comics anyway. Um, and secondly, it's just if you don't want to do Superman, if like if you want to do a version of Superman that kills people, then do what lots of other people have done in the comics over the last 30 years and do a Superman archetype analogue character and, and, and explore the differences between that character and the actual Superman. Because there's stuff that Superman does in this film that unfortunately, for all that Henry Cavill looks fantastic and makes a great Superman, the character that comes out of this film is not Superman to me. Reese, <laughs> I just, you're crazy. I think you're crazy if you look at this film and you see no, no Superman stuff in it. You know, there's... Maybe you have in Snyder. Oh, there is Snyder guy who who looks at the Superman character and sees and and is interested in 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 parts of it. You know, in not the whole thing or not the version of Superman that you have in your head, Seb, but in uh, different aspects of it, and and thinks that you can take the you know the you, you take the the power set, you take the the costume, you take the origin, you have the stuff about the from two worlds, two fathers. 
Um, and then you can, you know, you push in some slightly more interesting, slightly more subversive, slightly more against perhaps the traditional Superman character of the, you know, the stuff that we've been talking about. The, that maybe there's that, uh, criticism of, of, uh, American nationalism, that stuff in there. Uh, that's allowed, you know, it's, he's, and, he's allowed to make and maybe those choices. It, maybe does it go back to supporting that theory that, that Brendan put forward of that, this is that maybe Snyder looked at the character and went, okay, this is entirely what Superman is. But Superman on the page was created, what, back in the thirties? Is it or forties? I'm not, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not the expert here. Um, and then that the kind of the definitive screen iteration of him was created in the seventies and gone and has gone, well, look, this is 2013. What does the modern, what does this character look like through the prism of the I modern mean, world and made those changes? And all, and appropriately? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't disagree with the principle of of changing things, obviously, because you know things change. And you, you know, if if we were keeping Superman exactly the same as he was always been, then he'd still be like the 1938 version, where he's he doesn't yeah. even fly, you know, and he's beating up slum landlords and that kind of thing. It, on the one hand, yeah, I, I agree that you can change things and you can bring fresh things to an interpretation, like what I talked about with the the Lois and Clark relationship changing, because I don't feel that that element is a fundamental principle. I just feel with Superman, if you are telling a story where he kills at the end, then you might as well not be telling a Superman story. I mean, that entire question of if Superman kills, is it not a Superman movie? That's pretty much what has split the people who like this movie and dislike it. I mean, if you follow Dan Slott on Twitter, he is constantly arguing with people who at least say they are big Superman fans saying it doesn't matter and look here are the times where he's killed before and um, look at this that he did in Superman 2 for example and all that kind of stuff and I think that's probably not an argument that we can kind of like definitively draw a line under because there are no, just I mean, there are some people who, two hours just on you're not, not going <laughs> to get into a conversation with people from two different sides of that and come to a point where you but where you no. both like kind of oh well we can, we can I, agree I, on this common ground it's just not going to happen I don't think it's fair to say that people are wrong if the problem that they have with this film is the killing you can disagree yourself you can say i don't think it was a problem i enjoyed the film or you can even say it wasn't a problem for me but i disliked the film for other reasons i would like to say it was a problem yeah. <laughs> for me, but not because that's not Superman, just because it doesn't make any sense in this story. Well, yeah, that's, that's the, I mean, that's what we me. talked about earlier. I, I think it's as much of a problem to the film itself, but that's, and, that is a different thing. And argument. I do think all um, of the destruction, that subtext might be there. I don't want to watch a movie mm. where a superhero tears up his hometown, then tears up yeah. a big city, and yet that final scene, and the problem for me with the next snap and all of that, it is played as the tough decision but the right decision is in, and it is, it is presented as a win for our hero when I yeah. don't think it is. And I don't want to watch a superhero who has such a flagrant disregard. This is not me going, I don't think Superman should do that. I just didn't feel like I was watching a hero at that moment. I felt like, mm. I felt like I was watching a Transformers movie, the first Transformers movie where these two big fucking robots fight in a big city and smash the whole thing mm. up. I was like, well, you haven't beaten the bad guy. You've killed thousands of people and you, that's not a hero I want. And I, I should point I out this is in tandem with, and this is the, just the part of the movie that this is why I, ultimately come out as someone who doesn't like Man of Steel, despite the things I can stand up for and say I like about it, is that from the moment that the Kryptonians um, step foot in Smallville and Clark fights Zod in Smallville and then fights Zod in Metropolis, I'm just bored. I think the action is dull. There is spectacle. It's big. It feels huge. 
but it it feels like the wrong kind of huge as far as I'm concerned. I just can't get on board with that last hour. Just can't get on board with it. Whereas I guess for um, you, Reese, the action is good enough that you that you still can. Well, is that I, is that the re- so we, we talked about this last night. I watched it this week, rewatch for the fourth or fifth time, as I've said, and I was I was a bit bored by the last hour. I was yeah, um, but. I, but you I'm, weren't in the cinemas, right? Yeah, the first I'm trying, time I, I, I wanted to bring to the podcast recording the perspective of someone who I remember just being co- throughout thrilled. Mm. Thrilled, you know, feeling sort of edge of my seat. This is action I hadn't seen before. Um, and and that's just, reflective of the audience. This, mo- this yes. movie really split audience opinion. Mm-hmm. The action scene at the end, the Smallville scene perhaps less so, but... Uh, and the IHOP. Oh, God, All of the IHOP. Stuff. Oh, it's the worst. But um, just, I, it's going to make me sound sort of not the best. I just, it, it all, it looked cool to me. It did. <laughs> that sometimes it was is enough. Cool. That sometimes is For enough. For me, it was enough. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, but I also think it wasn't like a Transformers film because I couldn't, I, I couldn't care less about Optimus Prime, let's say, in a, in mm. a Transformers film. But because I was so into the first half of the film and, and I was really, I'd bought into this version of Superman of, of, of Clark Kent and I, I sort of tracked the conflict with Zod as well. You know, mm. I was invested in the conclusion of that fight. I mm. wanted to know what would happen. I wanted Clark Kent to beat Zod. And I was so invested in the fight and then you had the spectacle on top of that. Yeah. And so for me, those two fight scenes, I think maybe less so the, the smaller one because it's, you know, he's not, he's fighting a proxy. He's not actually fighting Zod. Mm. But with the Patronus fight, it's this great, big, huge action spectacle with two characters that I, uh, were interested, was inter- were interested in and wanted to know where the conflict was going. And, and so that for, for me you, was enough. It was and, enough. And so for you, the two big complaints with the Metropolis sequence, which is the destruction of Metropolis and the kill at the end. Was it, was it just a case for you that the destruction of Metropolis didn't occur to you or that it just didn't seem like a problem or? Yeah, I mean, that thing of, oh, these, all these innocent people die. I mean, um, no, they don't because it's not real. It's a movie. You know, you, <laughs> do you know I mean, you, you, you don't, you don't actually see people die. You know, no. what you, what you do is a, you see Lawrence member. Fishburne wobbling away from a falling sure. building. Best shot in the movie. Sure, it's a great shot. <laughs> what you do, as, an, as I understand, as an audience member, feeling in that moment bad and feeling like there have it been innocents killed, but it's that it's you as as a an individual filling in those gaps. You know, the movie never shows you people mm. dying. You decide to you but decide to take if... the conclusion that they do. But again, it's not. This isn't. This isn't a documentary. This is. All, it's all fiction. It's mm. all. Uh, you know. It's. You don't. You can decide that none, no, no innocent characters die in that whole city, or you can decide that they you, do, and you, it doesn't you matter. Can, or you can just be with the fight. You know, it's and th- the thing is, I mean, I, I don't think it matters how many people die or not in that scene. Like, I still have the same problem with it. Even if they were to say, even if they flashed up a news report that said miraculously nobody mm-hmm. was killed in Metropolis or Smallville, Fast and Furious I would movie. still have the same problem with it because. If nobody was killed, that would basically just be a miracle that had nothing to do with Superman. And the bigger problem is the lack of concern shown by Superman. And this is what where I'd like to just to kind of because I know we don't want to kind of go world, on and on about right? the, the Zod, if Zod thing. Zod wins. The end. Yep. Zod. Yeah, uh, kills well, he's trying to stop Zod. That's kind of a different thing. I mean, again, I, what I'd like to bring in and, and to sort of try yes, and round off the, the discussion over the of the Zod moment is again it's, it, it's the Mark Wade blog post and I think he's, he has got a more nuanced take on why that 
that Zod moment is a problem than just Superman doesn't kill, although that is part of it. But what he says, he says, as the credits rolled, I told myself I was upset because Superman doesn't kill. Full stop, Superman doesn't kill. But sitting there, I broke it down some more in my head because I sensed there was more to it since Superman clearly regretted killing Zod. I had to grant that the filmmakers at least went out of their way to put Superman in a position suggesting, but hardly conclusively proving, he had no mm-hmm. choice. And I did love his immediate aftermath reaction to Which, what Which, again, done. sorry, granted, thematically goes back again, yeah. breaks with the idea that this is a guy who who is going to come to Earth and is going to have choice like no Kryptonian has mm. before. So it doesn't doesn't work automatically. Um, Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I granted that they'd at least tried to present Superman with an impossible choice, and on a purely rational level, this had been a movie about a guy named Ultra Guy. I might even have bought what he did. But after I processed that, I realised it wasn't so much my uncompromising vision of Superman that made this a total fail moment for me. It was the failed lead-up to the moment. As Superman's having his final one-on-one battle with Zod, show me that he's going out of his way to save people from getting caught in the middle. Show me that trying to simultaneously protect humans and beat Zod is achingly costing Superman to the fight. Build to that moment of the hard choice. Show me without doubt that Superman has no other out and do a better job of convincing me that it's a hard decision to make and maybe... Yeah, and again, I think that comes down Um, to the staging of a scene because, like... Yeah, yeah, you're right that the build up has to be different. But then if that, if that choice at the end is that is, is a no choice thing for Superman, the staging of that scene being a family, given what has come before, isn't the right staging to make that. So it needs to be something bigger, maybe. It needs to be maybe that, um, I, I don't know, if Superman doesn't snap Zod's neck, he's going to be able to press the button that, gets the god engine back working or yeah, something yeah. like that and this yeah because it, it's just for it to come for, for him to be concerned about a small group of people which absolutely superman should yeah. be you know superman should should be concerned about one person but for him to have that concern after that moment that you said earlier on it's like actually the smallville stuff is a bigger problem for me than the metropolis stuff at least with the metropolis stuff you can have the argument that they are right in the middle of a fight and he doesn't really ha- and he's inexperienced and he doesn't have the time or the you know even the presence of mind to think about where he's throwing Zod he just has this single minded purpose to defeat Zod I can buy that argument in the Metropolis fight even though I still think Superman should be held to a higher standard in Smallville he specifically smashes Zod into a petrol station in Smallville when they have been outside yeah. of town I guess um, I, I mean I think we've probably addressed, addressed all of the major points so just Reseb anything any kind of closing thoughts to kind of wrap up your your feelings on this film I do I do have a closing thought I I agree that Zack Snyder didn't have to make a Superman movie you know mm. this story could have been Ultra Guy and uh, and it would have you know it would have been it would people would have not had the same issues with it as they do but he chose to make a Superman movie and kind of this is where I'm with Seb to be honest with you which is that if you make a Superman film you then you have to you have to know that there will be people with certain versions of that that character in their head and with mm. different um, with different propensities for the character uh, and hold the character to certain values. And you are going to piss people off if you change that stuff too much. So, from my personal perspective, none of the Superman stuff bothers me in the movie, as we've discussed, and I enjoy the movie. I think basically because of that. But um, I also think you know Zack Snyder and and the decision makers behind this film, they have to, you know, they've made their bed and they have to line it. They have to, they have to accept. And I accept that there are people like Seb out there who, who are going to have gonna issues with this movie like thing. that. And yeah. I think that's, you know, they chose to make a Superman movie and they, um, you know, so I, I kind of don't have any issue with, with those issues with the film, you know, mm. but um, you, from a personal standpoint, I don't have it those. works for you. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Seb, any, anything else to add? I, I mean, 
obviously a lot of what I spent time talking about is what I dislike in terms of how this uh, approaches Superman. But I do think it's important to also to divorce that from whether I think it's a good film in its own right. Like, if you took out, if you literally did a find and replace on the script and this film was about a guy called Ultra Guy, no, I wouldn't have all the same problems. But actually, going into, obviously, the first time I watched it, most of what I could think of was, does this work for me as a version of Superman? And that's why I had such a problem with it. But watching it this week for the podcast, I was determined to go into it with an attitude of, if I put all of that stuff aside and just try and look at what it does as a movie, do I enjoy it as a movie in its own right? And despite the fact that it has a couple of good set pieces, some good performances, and some moments of spectacle, and, you know, yeah, taking aside all the moral problems with it, the Zod fight, I think the other set pieces, maybe not so much, but the Zod fight is a really great and a well-directed set piece. You can tell what's going on. It's a big superhero fight scene where you can tell what's going on, and that's not always the case. So, you know, give it that. But for the most part, I just didn't enjoy it as a film. I think it's slow and it's dull and it's got no sense of humour and it's ponderous and it takes itself too seriously. And yeah, like, you know, what all the stuff you were saying about, you know, there, there's stuff that you can criticise because of the way it approaches Superman, but you can criticise those same things like the Zod neck snapping because it literally does not work even within the rules and themes that this movie has set out for itself. And that's where I think its bigger problems are. Like, I would be happy to say it's a good movie, but it's not for me because it's not a good Superman movie. Unfortunately, I just ultimately think it's not a good movie, full stop. Right, well, everyone, exhale. (laughs) Batman v Superman in two weeks' time. Can't wait. Okay, well, we'll move on now to our recommendations segment. And um, actually, Seb, you're going to come on with two recommendations for me, is that right? Kind of. Two two things that are relevant, but only one is really right. a recommendation. This is a comic that I've been looking forward to recommending, and one of the reasons I was happy to do Man of Steel was so that I could recommend this <laughs> comic. Because, I mean, firstly, it is one of my favourite Superman comics ever. It's called Superman Birthright. It's by Mark Wade, who is the yeah. writer whose blog post I was reading some parts of earlier, and uh, drawn by Lane Yu, who you might remember drew Ultimate Wolverine versus Hulk that you read for the pod a little mm. while back. Um, it's from 2004, and it is. it was, at the time, it was the the official canonical retelling of Superman's origin. First time that it had been revised since Man of Steel in the 80s. Which was your recommendation on the last Superman film. It was, yeah. Um, And it brought a lot of stuff up to date. Um, It brought things in line with DC's kind of slightly revised continuity and it also made everything happen more recently. Um, It's a 12-issue miniseries. Um, I think the reason why it works, actually, and part of the reason why it's relevant to this, other than it being written by Mark Wade, is that I think it's a perfect pitch for a Superman movie to reintroduce Superman afresh, to actually tackle some of the same themes that Man of Steel does in terms of him arriving on Earth and being a distrusted outsider and all of that. Um, it just tackles them so much better while maintaining the core of the character. It adds some new stuff to the mythos. There's some stuff in Man of Steel that's directly taken from this, like the S shield being the Kryptonian symbol for hope and stuff like that, actually comes directly from Birthright and there's a couple of other little moments. Um, I just really, really love it as a a great 12-part Superman story. Like, you've read All-Star and Secret Identity, which are probably my top two. Um, This comes in at number three, and this is the only one that is a proper in-universe DC Comics Superman story. You know, the Mm. others are their own kind of continuity or their own thing. Um, This is just a great, honest-to-goodness... This is a story I would give to someone to say, if you want to see how a Superman story can be 
contemporary and in the present day and a straight down the line superhero story but still be a proper superman story at heart and get the essence of the character and then your recommendation that is not a recommendation Hmm. well this is i think this is interesting to look at which is superman earth one by j marcus Straczynski and shane davis and i've described man of steel as a superman movie for people who don't really like superman and i would describe superman earth one as a superman comic for people who don't really like superman this came along a few years ago and was like it was a, a one-off graphic novel and then they've done a couple more it's like a series but they're, they're graphic novels they didn't come out monthly they're set in their own continuity and they got a lot of praise at the time in in kind of more mainstream press for being oh this is superman for a modern generation this is like a reinvention of superman and it is more relevant to the present day what it really is is superman as a grumpy <laughs> sod um and it's just it's just it's so dark and you know the the plot thread is about a villain from Krypton who comes to earth to hunt down Superman because he just he, this guy destroyed Krypton and now he wants to destroy the last Kryptonian and it's just so grim and people like it like there are people who like these books they sell well but what i find interesting is that as i say i i feel like they're a reinvention of superman for if you don't like a lot of the stuff that that makes superman superman like the the goody goody boy scout nature then go and read these because it's like the surface trappings put on a completely different character. So I'm not recommending it as something good, but I think um, it's interesting to hold it against Man (laughs) of Steel. For what it's worth, I would always rather watch Man of Steel than read Earth 1. Like, I like I think Man of Steel is more noble in its aims than Earth 1 is. That's how bad I think Earth 1 is. Right, okay, fair enough. We'll move on to our final section now, which is the pitch. And... This week, I want to ask if Zack Snyder had theoretically walked away from the Superman universe after Man of Steel, who would you have hired to direct Batman v Superman, colon, Dawn of Justice? And um, Reese, I'll come to you first. Who Who would your Man of Steel sequel director have been if Snyder was gone? Um, so this is from the, what you said earlier about the two scores for the new Batman v Superman, like you mm-hmm. have Hans Zimmer doing the Superman stuff, Junkie XL doing the Batman stuff. So, what about two directors? Do you keep Snyder? Or do <laughs> no. you don't so keep So, what I'm thinking is let's get the two most famous and most important Batman and Superman directors. Okay, yeah, right. So, let's get Christopher Nolan to do the Batman stuff. And let's get Richard Donner to do the Superman stuff. <laughs> uh, and they both direct their own individual scenes. They kind of have their own whole individual staffs to make their halves of the movie. And then, but then but when, they're, when they're together, like Coen Brothers style. Yeah, exactly. And you sort of maybe even get like a little picture-in-picture picture during the fight scenes where you actually have to sort of see them both trying to direct the same scenes and there's like an ego <laughs> thing going on. It's kind of interesting. And then you also wouldn't know who would kind of win the fight by the end because it would be kind of who directs the hardest. Right. Decides okay. who wins the, who wins the of that. That's my idea, I guess. So Donna and Nolan. Donna Nolan. Okay. Donna v. Nolan. <laughs> Donna no- That would be a great portmanteau name for those directors. Yeah. Um, yeah. Seb, do you have do you have anything better than Donna Nolan? Well, I mean, okay, I don't really have a whole a whole spiel or reasoning for this, so it'll just be saying the name, but I feel like saying the name will, will get across everything I need to. Guillermo del Toro. I think Guillermo del Toro on a, a proper, honest-to-goodness DC Comics superhero movie would be fantastic. Um, I think he'd get the source material. I think it would look great. It would have a style of its own. What more do you need? I'll, I'll be honest, I think just purely because of how the name works out, I'm going to have to go for Donna yes. Nolan. That's fantastic. <laughs> Donna, Donna Nolan coming to a cinema near you soon. Fantastic. Um, okay, so um, Reese wins the pitch this week. And um, that means the end of the podcast. So, Reese, thanks, uh, thanks for coming back. No problem. And if, epic. Our, if our listeners want to find you, you know, maybe arguing about this podcast more on Twitter, at Seb Patrick versus 
at Reese colon tweets of justice. Nice. Would that work? Yeah. So they hashtag, can find you. Long hashtag. They can find you at Reese. Yeah. R H Y S is how you spell yeah. that. That's how you spell his name. Um, but that is it for this week's show. So if you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And you can support us by heading over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic universe and uh, giving us some financial backing. Yes, uh, thank you to Alana Bramhall, who actually kind of double thanks, really, because firstly, uh, she backed us, which was great, and thank you. Um, and then when I tweeted that her backing had taken us to only 35 cents short of our next target, uh, she amended her backing by another dollar and put another dollar on. So we have now passed $75 Hooray. a month. Every month that we're at that, we will publish a new article. Um, it will first be sent out to the backers as an exclusive, and then a little while afterwards, we'll publish it on cinematicmultiverse.com. So I'm writing the next piece that's going to go up at some point, and that will go out soon. Um, It's it's going to be the first in in an occasional series of picking a comic that hasn't been made into a film or movie and writing about why it should be and how they should do it. Great. So that's so that's a Patreon update. Um, You can get in touch with us via Facebook, on Twitter at cu underscore podcast, or send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Tell me, do you bleed? You will. <coughs> uh, uh, excuse me. Um, Cinematic Universe will return in two weeks' time with Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.